Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 135. Uh, and tonight, I think, though I'm not going to make any rash promises, I think we're going to let Boromir finish his speech tonight. That's my, um, that's my ambition <laughs> for the evening. Uh, perhaps... If we are really feisty, we'll get so far as the next poem, uh, which fortunately is also a poem we've already talked about. So um, we'll see. Yeah, Mad Violence, if we get to the next poem, I mean, that's a ways down the road. That doesn't happen for several paragraphs after this. Uh, so, so we'll see. But anyway... Welcome back, everybody. So glad to have you uh, here again with me, uh, even more so than usual. I know that, uh, you know, in these times, our opportunity to get together and have class together, is, it's, uh, it, is, it is even more precious now than it normally is. So I'm just, uh, just want you guys to know that I'm feeling very appreciative uh, of you guys and um, uh, looking forward <laughs> Looking forward to it. I'm sorry, I was just laughing at Evil Dr. Cannon's comment that non-essential commentators are expected to comment from home on the general chat in Discord. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we need to, uh, by all means, triage these things. So uh, anyway, um, quick announcements tonight. I don't have too much. Um, I just wanted to draw your attention to... Um, first of all, just a reminder that Morgoth's Ring is happening. So we've got Morgoth's Ring, our discussion of Volume 10 of the History of Middle-Earth, uh, and that is happening on Wednesday night. So tomorrow night will be our discussion of the second uh, section, our second discussion on Morgoth's Ring. Really, really fascinating stuff. What we're, what we're doing, of course, what happens at the beginning of Morgoth's Ring uh, is Christopher Tolkien shows us basically what did Tolkien do after he wrote The Lord of the Rings, right? Um when he goes, when you know, when it's time to go back to the Silmarillion, um, both after the Lord of the Rings is finished and before it's published, uh, back when he was still harboring hopes that he could try to get it published, both of them together, and then of course after the Lord of the Rings itself is published and he's returning, one of the one of the questions that I feel like we're already getting some really good insight on, even after only one discussion, is really understanding better the question. So why exactly did Tolkien not finish the Silmarillion? I mean, it's a complicated question, and there are lots of um, elements, of course, that contributed to that whole situation. Um, but even just after one discussion, I feel like I understand uh, that. I can see that situation a lot more clearly. Anyway, a lot of fun. Um, um, but, Iwan Dillian, you are absolutely right that uh, Morgoth's Ring is a very dense book, especially the front bits of it, by which I mean like the first two-thirds or so of the book. Um, so, yeah, I have, I mean, and I, I, I can't emphasize enough how rewarding I have found it to be going through these books, to be marching through the history of Middle-earth um, uh, with everybody there in the Mythgard Academy, kind of chapter by chapter. Uh, it has really helped to clarify the picture for me, not just of sort of the contents of the history of Middle-earth, um, but really I have come away with so much clearer an understanding, a sort of a view uh, of Tolkien's develop, Tolkien's creative life. Essentially, it's been very, very illuminating. So, um, anyway, um, uh, okay, cool. So, I just wanted to remind you. So that's tomorrow. It starts 10 p.m. Eastern time, uh, and uh, of course, the uh, recordings are on YouTube, and you can subscribe to the Mythgard Academy podcast feed as well to get the audio feeds there if you prefer listening to me talk ridiculously fast at advanced speeds. Uh, so anyway, 
Looking forward to our second discussion of Morgoth's Ring tomorrow night. Uh, also, wanted to draw everybody's attention. We're having a uh, our quarantine special uh, at Signum. A lot of people have been availing themselves of this. There's 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 one uh, one fan in particular, one uh, uh, anytime audit fan who has. Uh, already uh, acquired like six semesters worth of classes <laughs> in the last couple weeks through our quarantine special, which is great. And I'm like, oh man, this guy must be really stir crazy. Um, but anyhow, uh, it's awesome. It's been a, a, a really good opportunity. So if you if you you know want to take this time to be able to dig into some really excellent content, um, all of our almost all almost every one of the courses we've offered in the history of Signum is available uh, for any time off at, uh, for for any time audit. Uh, meaning you can download and 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 listen to all the lectures, uh, get all the materials for the classes and stuff, um, and. Um, Anyways, and the, and we're running a special on all those things uh, now. The uh, the original quarantine special was supposed to end at the end of this week, but I think probably they'll extend that. You know, like the you know the the state governor will make an announcement and extend the quarantine special sale uh, for a couple more weeks, probably. So, um, anyway, yeah. Um, okay, good. So let's get back to the text. Well, almost back to the text, because, of course, as usual, the rule that um, uh, the rule that I have observed so many times continues to be true, namely that no matter how long we take discussing something in class, uh, people can always still point out things that we didn't get to or that like we just skipped right over, like we didn't even think to talk about this, or at least I didn't think to talk about this. And if you guys brought it up, I missed it. Um, so um, I wanted to jump to Beach 27, uh, who was wanting to talk a little bit more about the, the, uh, the line... Uh, for Isildur's Bane shall waken. Um, and the question is, in what sense shall Isildur's Bane waken? Um, one, as we sit in the council, is it woken now? Or is that still potentially to come? Is, is that a prophecy of things to come? Does this constitute the waking? What's up with that? If it isn't yet awake, what will it do? That is, what will the awakening, the awakening of the ring look like? Um, bringing us back to the ring's agency when that happens. If it's awake, what's it doing now that it wasn't before while it was asleep? Uh, and three, if and when it wakes, who or what triggers it? Or if it is done, who or what did it? Is this caused by Sauron actively seeking it, or does it do this itself? What's, um, what's going on? So, okay. Uh, great question. We didn't really talk about that metaphor of the awakening of the ring. Um... My, um, so my thoughts about this are basically, well, okay, my answer is a little bit boring, which is I think the answer to number one is yes. I think that, um, when the, you know, the prophecy that Faramir and also Boromir and possibly Denethor, though he ain't going to cop to it, uh, is, are, are receiving, um, says that, uh, you know, when the fort... Isildur's Bane shall waken and the halfling forth shall stand. Um, I think it's referring to this moment. Um, the moment when Isildur's Bane comes out into the 
public eye, right? As it were, not the public, of course, not the general public, um, but when it is brought forth. Um, of course, one reason I think that is the close association for Isildur's Bane shall waken and the halfling forth shall stand. We talked about even how structurally in the poem those two last lines are really linked together fairly closely. So um, that's uh, so again, I, I, those two things really seem to me uh, sort of connected. Yeah, Mark, I saw your suggestion that Gandalf woke it up uh, by using the black speech. And I sort of imagine the ring being like, hey, what? What was that? Um, yeah, no, probably not. Um, but um, anyway, uh, it's it's. Again, I, I, I see those two things associated. So when Frodo brings out the ring and holds it up, as he's about to do, um, you know, in only a few paragraphs uh, or like a few sentences, really, um, that's that is what I think the poem is alluding to uh, at uh, as the the awakening of the ring. Um, not that it's referring to like the internal state of the ring, like the ring. It's not a question of. There's a time in which the ring is asleep and then the ring wakes up. Um, but rather that it is when the ring, like, re-enters, like, uh, you know, it uh, awakens to trouble the counsels of the great. That doesn't mean it's doing anything. That just means that it's the subject of conversation now when it wasn't before. Um, that it's being brought forth in that way. I kind of think that that's probably what the poem is primarily talking about. It seems to me, um, here's the other thing. And again, this is not really a separate argument, but just to kind of add, um, uh, to that statement. Um, the, what is the last line referring to? And the halfling forth shall stand. Right. Um, those two things, the wakening of the ring and the standing forth of the halfling, which are so directly um, uh, which are so directly coupled there. Um, and that is. It's pretty clear to me that the standing forth of the happening of the halfling is what is about to happen when Frodo holds up the ring. That is the standing forth of the happening of the halfling. Does it allude to things later on? That is, does it refer to the way in which Frodo is going to stand forth and, uh, uh, you know, do what he's going to do in a more significant way later on? Yeah, sure. In some ways, I guess it could be understood to mean, but I, I, I don't, um, I don't know. I'm not really convinced that I'm even less convinced that the line about the awakening of the ring really has anything to do with the internal awareness of the ring. Again, it's going from a state of dormancy to a state of, uh, of non-dormancy. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm really not convinced. I know this gets back to debates that we've had in part in which we're sort of holding suspended in a sense as we go through the text. So I suppose it's fair enough to ask whether or not at this point we are getting anything like evidence to suggest is, does this suggest that the ring is sentient, that the ring is conscious, that the ring is, is awake in some more literal sense? I don't 
See, I don't think so. I don't think that there is um, any really clear way that we can draw that conclusion. So here's one reason that leads me to think that. Um, yeah, well, and that's one good point. I, sorry, I can't make out your Twitter handle there. On Twitter, um, like, when does the ring sleep exactly, right? Um, the... Um, this... If the ring was asleep, at what point? Is it, is it waking up now? Is Do we have reason to think that the ring is different? There's something, like, intrinsically different about the ring immediately before and after this moment? Or what moment, exactly? It can't be talking about something in the past because it's using the future tense, right? If the prophecy is that Isildur's bane shall waken, right, it's saying something that's going to happen in the, fu- in the future. So it seems to be that at the Council of Elrond is the earliest possible moment that the prophecy of those last two lines could be fulfilled, right? Um, and, uh, um, and yeah, exactly, exactly, again, as ye whose Twitter handle I cannot read uh, because it's sideways to me and full of many different characters, um, says Gandalf had talked about the ring being, in, in, if there's a question of the ring being sentient and awake, it already is. Um, Gandalf spoke of that, right, about you know the ring wanting to get back to its master. So if it was in a dormant state, it isn't now. And that, so again, I just don't, I don't think that that can possibly be what the prophecy, the message that's being delivered to Gondor, right? To Faramir and to Boromir. I don't think that that can possibly be what it's alluding to, right? It is, of course, possible. Now, um, Angrist, you are right that the ring, the power of the ring is going to increase in proportion to Sauron's rising strength, or really, actually, what is emphasized even more is that the power of the ring is going to grow in in proportion to in inverse proportion to its distance from Sauron, right? As the ring approaches Mordor, and then especially after they cross the border of Mordor and begin to approach the center of Sauron's strength, the ring is going to be stronger and stronger. But again, is there a is there a awakening point? Was it asleep? And it's not anymore. Again, that's not um that metaphor of waking just does not really seem to apply to that process. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that, um, that again, it can be seen as the fulfillment of that line, uh, because again, that process was already sort of underway. Now, Chris, that's an interesting idea, um, that, uh, you know, what if, uh, Isildur's Bane is actually not like just, sort of a kenning for the ring itself, um, but is actually the temptation to take the ring unto oneself that Boromir is going to experience rather than the ring itself. So, okay, so uh, if what is being described as Isildur's Bane is not just the ring, but that sort of fatal temptation uh, to claim the ring for uh, one's own, which, you know, as far as we know, uh, claimed Isildur and was the actual sort of uh, 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 cause of his downfall there. Um, so, um, anyway, yes, I kind of like that idea. It would seem contradicted by Elrond's glossing of Isildur's bane as the ring, right? And thus it was called in the north Isildur's bane, and so that would seem to be the presumptive interpretation of Isildur's bane, meaning, in fact, the ring itself, and not just 
a particular sort of moral or spiritual condition brought about by the ring. Um, the thing that I like best about it, Chris, about that, about that suggestion. And by the way, Chris, I'm going to, I'm going to call you Chris from now on, uh, to differentiate you from Christopher Tolkien. Uh, Chris was attending Morgoth's ring class last week and he was confessing that he always kind of jumps when I, uh, refer to Christopher, whom I always refer to Christopher Tolkien as Christopher to differentiate him from his father. Um, so I'm going to call you Chris to differentiate you from Christopher Tolkien. (laughs) But anyway, um, so, yes, it certainly could be metaphorical. Again, I'm not saying it isn't theoretically possible. And the thing that I really like um, about that interpretation, uh, the thing that I find really appealing about it, is the fact that it would seem to contain a direct warning to Boromir, right? Um, that, uh, like, just, you know, keep in mind, um, uh, Isildur's bane shall waken, and Boromir, I am talking to you, right? That you have to be aware of that. Um uh, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, right, from the moment he saw it, he wanted the enemy's ring, as Sam says, and so therefore Isildur's bane, in that sense, does waken as soon as Boromir sees the ring. Again, like, it kind of works. Like, I mean, I, I, it appeals in many ways. I can't say I find it convincing. I mean, it's certainly like that having just provided, you know, Elrond having just um, provided the gloss that Isildur's ring is Isildur's bane is the ring. Um, I, I, you know, it's, that's like the presumptive interpretation, right? It's really hard uh, to say that that's not uh, the case in any way. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it's to, 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 we, we need really good reason uh, to issue that, uh, you know, the clear interpretation of the line. Um, but, um, yeah, anyhow, anyhow, so as I said, it definitely has some appeal. I, I like it, but I can't say I'm convinced of it at the end of the day. Um, but anyway, getting back to the awakening thing. Could this, the only thing that I can see that this could refer to as far as the status of the ring, like the only status that I can see the ring having that changes is indeed the way that the ring strengthens as it gets closer to Mordor. But again, there's no wakening point, right? There's, you, you know, can we point to a time in which the ring was snoozing and then was more wakeful thereafter? I mean, the only moment, because it wakened, I mean, that's a, that's a thing. That's an event, right? It's not will grow or will wax or something like that. It's not a process that's describing. It's awakening. It's a moment that's being described. Um, and the only time we get anything like a moment for the waxing of the power of the ring over the course of the Two Towers and the Return of the King is when um, is when Sam crosses the border into Mordor, bearing the ring. And he's conscious of the fact that something is is different now, right? That's the only thing I can I can think of in the text that suggests a kind of well, not exactly black and white, but a you know that sort of a boundary, a, a concrete boundary has been crossed, uh, or I should say perhaps a spiritual ba- boundary correlating with the geographical boundary uh, that was just crossed. Um, so. 
anyway, but but again, does that seem to me to satisfy this? Like, no. Like, why on earth would the prophetic message um, that was being sent to Gondor allude to like what will happen if the ring bearer carries the ring across the border of Mordor? Like, that just doesn't really make any sense at all. Um, I could imagine O'Malley, as you're suggesting, uh, thinking about when the ring is discovered by Diagol, right? As the moment when it was wakened, right? You know, that it had been in some sense dormant in the bottom of the river, right? From the death of Isildur all the way up through uh, its finding. And then, of course, it's taking by Gollum. Okay, sure, maybe. But again, that clearly can't be what the poem is referring to because it's speaking in the future. For Isildur's bane shall waken, not Isildur's bane woke a long time ago, right? Like a couple centuries ago. Um, so anyway, I, I, I just, I think that when we think about the context of the entire poem, um, which I might as well hang on, I kept the slide in case I needed it. Um, uh, when we think about the context of the whole, of, of the whole, of the whole poem, right? What is this poem about? Seek for the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. We, you know, again, that imperative that we begin with. And then the there shall be section, right? There shall be councils taken stronger than Morgul's spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. For Isildur's bane shall waken and the halfling forth shall stand. Don't those sound like a fulfillment of what was being described in the middle section, right? In Imladris it dwells, the sword that is broken, that thing you're supposed to seek in Imladris. And FYI, while you're in Imladris, stuff is going to happen, right? Really important councils are going to be taken, a, to- a token that doom is near at hand is going to be shown. Those are the things that are going to happen at at uh, Imladris. Have I piqued your curiosity? Want to know a little bit more about what that's going to look like? For Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. It just, in the context of the poem, it certainly sounds like those things that are joined together in those last two lines are meant to explain, to illustrate, to give more information about what's going to happen in Imladris. Right. Um, So, again, I do definitely think that um, the clearest interpretation of what it means for Isildur's Bane Wakening uh, in this circumstance is it now being revealed and therefore troubling the counsels of the great. Um, The moment when those who are joined here at this council are tasked with deeming the doom, right? This is the doom that's near at hand, right? And that's, you know, as we talked about, as we did, we did talk about this, uh, the way in which the poem does, I think, use the word doom uh, at, uh, in, in both senses, right? Um, doom is near at hand. That is like destruction is nigh, right? The end is indeed nigh. Uh, they are facing doom, but... They also have a very mighty doom to deem, right? And that is because Isildur's bane has wakened. Um, so, Irindus, if Isildur's bane is the ring, what is the token? Um, Isildur's bane is the token, right? There shall, be to- to- there shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Doom is near at hand because both, again, those last two lines, the first talks about the ring and the second about the ring bearer, 
right? Those two things will be shown forth at this council. This is why you need to go, Gondorian folks. Again, remember, this is a message. There's a purpose for this. It's not just a, a poem printed somewhere, right? This is a message delivered to the Gondorian leadership, right? To Faramir, to Boromir, to Denethor. Um, and they're, t- they're saying, there shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. When those things happen, you know that th- that is the token, that doom is near at hand. You'll know that doom is near at hand when, is- when you see Isildur's bane. And when the halfling stands forth, I think in both senses of standing forth, both in the sense of shall like step forward, right? Um, but, um, but also shall like distinguish himself, like Frodo's choice to take Frodo's willingness to take up the ring, to become the ring bearer, right? Um, he is going to stand forth to show the ring, but he's also going to stand forth to take up the ring, right? Not only to deliver, but also to take up the ring. Um, These things, this is the token that doom is near at hand. You know, the time for doom has come. The time for the ultimate doom is near and could happen. But even more importantly, the time for the decision is now. Um, Yeah. Uh, Exactly, Trifle. Frodo standing up and holding out the ring. Yes, that's exactly. That does seem uh, uh, to me to be the token that is is alluded to, and what the um, uh, what the waking of uh, Isildur's bane means in this context. Um, but Irindus, I do not deny that these the two lines of the poem will also be interesting later on. Uh, that is when Frodo uh, is in Mordor, right? Uh, Frodo at the cracks. In, uh, when Frodo arrives at the cracks of doom, uh, we should probably recall these lines as well, right? Now, but at the same time, I don't want to lean too hard on them, right? These are this. Is, I mean, look, it's a prophetic poem, so it's hard to pay too much attention to a prophetic poem, if you ask my opinion, right? But. Um, but it's not like this is the great prophecy around which the entire story hinges, right? This is a message delivered to Gondor. This is not like the secret of the universe, right? Revealed to everyone. This is, uh, uh, but again, he did come bearing these words. You got to think that uh, whoever was the voice delivering this uh, message to, um, uh, to, the Gondorian leadership fully intended Elrond and everybody else at the council to hear these words as well. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm not trying, again, I'm not really trying to downplay it. Um, but I do, um, but I do think that, yeah, again, it's not like, uh, these words are at the, the, the heart of the whole story, I would say. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, let's see. Um, uh, yeah, Tim Dolph says that's what he wants to know. Who is speaking? Uh, 
Don't know. Don't know who is speaking. We're not going to know who's speaking. That's not something that will ever be revealed, unfortunately. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. We can only speculate about that. I know... I know that a lot of you have been thinking about Gandalf um, because of his association with dreams and it came in a dream and especially how well that fits in with the brother later on, right? Um, uh, that is knowing that uh, that the vision came to Faramir and that Faramir, you know, is a wizard's pupil. I, I know that that makes it feel um, more... Uh, um, even more sort of likely that Gandalf had a hand in it. I, um, I don't really, I don't really know that that's likely, honestly. Um, mostly because it's, it, Gandalf isn't omnipotent, and I don't think Gandalf is sending dreams to Gondor from long distance, right? Um, and he's occupied at the time. It's not like... Uh, I mean, if this corresponded to the time in which Gandalf was in Gondor, uh, I'd be a little more suspicious, but it doesn't. And I really don't think so. So yeah, could it be a Lauren's old mentor? Certainly could be. Um, uh, it could be Irmo. It could be Olmo, who kind of has a thing with dreams uh, and prophetic messages in dreams. Um yeah, I, I see no reason not to. Here's the primary thing. Um, here's the primary thing that I would say about. And also, by the way, I would say, although Gandalf is associated with dreams, um, he's not associated very strongly with dreams like this. That is to say, prophetic visions don't seem to be his bag, as far as we can tell. Um, uh, the dreams and visions that are associated with Gandalf, and again, that's not going to happen for some time, uh, as far as the text is concerned, um, are mostly like inspiration and hope and things like that, not um, uh, poetical prophecies uh, necessarily. But I have absolutely no question, uh, Trifle, I, I'm absolutely ready to say this clearly comes from the West, right? I mean, whoever did it... Um, this comes out of the West. Um, this is... Uh, do you want evidence that, you know, the Ainur are still involved, right? That the, the, the West is still taking an interest? Yeah, I, I, did, I see this here. That's exactly how I see this. Um, I, um, so, so yeah. I, I, again, we don't know which of the Valar or which of the Maiar it was who originated or delivered the dream, um, but... But yeah, I definitely think that this is a message from the Lords of the West, certainly. Um, uh, okay, all right, I have an idea. Let's move on. But before we move on, <laughs> I just want to read that last paragraph again, but I'm not going to talk about it because we've already talked about it. But just for context, right, uh, as we move so that we can follow... Because, of course, Boromir's, as we've already discussed, Boromir's speech here is far too 
carefully and beautifully structured for us to do him the injustice of jumping around in it, right? We should, we should go. Okay. Of these words we could understand little, and we spoke to our father, Denethor, lord of Minas Tirith, wise in the lore of Gondor. This only would he say, that Imladris was of old the name among the elves of a far northern dale, where Elrond the half-elven dwelt, greatest of lore-masters. Therefore, my brother, seeing how desperate was our need, was eager to heed the dream and seek for Imladris, but since the way was full of doubt and danger, I took the journey upon myself. Loth was my father to give me leave, and long have I wandered by roads forgotten, seeking the house of Elrond, of which many had heard, but few knew where it lay. And here, in the house of Elrond, more shall be made clear to you, said Aragorn, standing up. He cast his sword upon the table that stood before Elrond, and the blade was in two pieces. Here is the sword that was broken, he said. And who are you? And what have you to do with Minas Tirith? asked Boromir, looking in wonder at the lean face of the ranger and his weather-stained cloak. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, said Elrond, and he is descended through many fathers from Isildur, Elendil's son of Minas Ithil. He is the chief of the Dúnedain of the north, and few are now left of that folk. Then it belongs to you, and not to me at all, cried Frodo in amazement, springing to his feet, as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. It does not belong to either of us, said Aragorn, but it has been ordained that you should hold it for a while. Bring out the ring, Frodo, said Gandalf solemnly. The time has come. Hold it up, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. Whew! Okay, there's a lot to talk about in this passage, right? Okay, let's see if... Here's, so here's my ambitious goal. My ambitious goal is to finish talking about this slide tonight. Okay, so... Um, Aragorn responds, right, uh, to Denethor. Well, sorry, not to, to Boromir and uh, what Boromir has just said about Denethor and, and uh, their purpose. Here in the house of Elrond, more shall be made clear to you, said Aragorn, standing up. Here is the sword that was broken. So, note, that's all Aragorn says at first. Right? That's all Aragorn volunteers without provocation. I think that this is important. Um, Aragorn is going to go on to say several other things, right, over the course of the next few slides. But all that he says at first is, here is the sword that was broken. Um, Gilgonthir, I agree, he does not introduce himself. He doesn't list his titles. He doesn't even say anything about... So, on the one hand, it sounds like he's saying, well, here's the interpretation of your riddle, Boromir. But, of course, he's not giving anything of the kind, right? Um, remember what... Um, Seek for the sword that was broken, in Imladris it dwells. Here in the house of Elrond, more shall be made clear to you. Here is the sword that was broken. So why should they seek it? What's, what's, what has been accomplished by the finding of the broken sword? Right? Um, 
So, yeah, exactly, Chris. He is responding uh, to the first two lines, right? Um, in a kind of paraphrase, right, almost, he's responding to the first two lines. Um, but he doesn't say anything else. He could, right? I mean, he could, and Elrond, in fact, does, right? Elrond offers a sort of gloss after Aragorn says nothing, right? Here's a sword that was broken. Exactly, Gilgonthir, for all Boromir knows, Aragorn could be, you know, a curator. <laughs> Absolutely, he could, right? Um, be like, hey, I'm the dude, uh, uh, like, I didn't introduce myself because my name is uh, Dude Who Looks After the Broken Sword. I happen to be holding it because it's my job. Today's my day with a broken sword, um, and you were looking for it. So, ta-da, broken sword, Right? Um, Elrond is not satisfied with that, right? Um, but notice, let's not skip over Boromir's response, right? <laughs> exactly, as as Tiber says uh, on the on the the uh, Twitch chat. One broken sword coming up. Uh, you know, it's it's like yeah, exactly. He's he's like a short order cook here. Um, but, but anyway, I mean, obviously I'm being a little bit facetious. It's, I don't really think, uh, that anyone that Boromir is under the supposition that this is just a random dude who happened to be holding the sword. It's important, right? And you can tell that Boromir thinks that from his own response. And who are you and what have you to do with Minas Tirith? Asked Boromir, looking in wonder at the lean face of the ranger and his weather-stained cloak. Right? So... Boromir immediately gets the fact that, okay, when the poem said we should seek for the broken sword, it was probably less interested in the broken sword itself than in the dude who carries the broken sword. So it turns out that that dude has the broken sword. So if I was supposed to seek for the sword that was broken, I've been instructed, apparently, to come to this guy, right, who had the broken sword. Boromir makes that leap, right? Um, and he, his response is neutral, right? But his second question, I think, is the more revealing. Who are you is a perfectly sensible thing to say because Aragorn has not said who he is or what the sword is or what it means or why Boromir should seek it, what it has to do with Gondor or what he has to do with Gondor, right? None of these things, as Aragorn said, he just says, here's the sword that was broken, right? Who are you? Sensible question. What have you to do with Minas Tirith? More important question, right? That, this shows us, right, that um, Boromir understands so, again, we, we can sort of work through Boromir's reasoning here. The, the dream, right, the message in the dream was a message. It was, an inst- it was instructions for Minas Tirith, right? This was... Uh, Gondor is in terrible need, right? We got driven back by the Witch King. There's nothing we can do against the Morgul spells, the right, that we're facing. And then, boom... On the eve of that battle, which, like in retrospect, this seemed even more important after the battle, um, we received this message about what we could do, right? About, uh, you know, this is, so this is, he has come to seek 
what? Exactly, right? And that's an interesting question, actually. What does Boromir think he's doing when he comes to Imodris? Um, I know what he says, or what he's going to say about it, but I'm not sure I believe him. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, so his first thought when this random guy who, let's remember, is not super impressive looking. Um, he's not dressed up in... He, he, he you know, he... Uh, he dressed up the night before uh, at in the Hall of Fire, remember. Um, but he's not dressed up again now. Uh, he's dressed down again. Now, he's not in full uh, Strider mode, right? Um, I don't think that anyone who meets him now at the table in Elrond's house, uh, you know, around the table in the Council of Elrond, is going to mistake him for uh, a rascal, right, as uh, the hobbits did in Bree. But... He certainly um, is not, he's not dressed in his gorgeous elvish mail and looking like an elf prince like he did the night before either, right? Um, he's wearing his weather-stained cloak again, and Evil Dr. Cannon, I do suspect that his hair is not as good as Boromir's hair. <laughs> um, so notice the, things, the two things that are emphasized. Notice the two adjectives that we get from that little brief description of Aragorn, lean and weather-stained, right? His, his face is lean. He doesn't look um, impressive, right? Um, uh, I mean, does he have a lean and hungry look? I don't know. But he, 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 he doesn't look kingly, necessarily, right? Um, uh, but... Um, and he certainly doesn't look prosperous, Edith, exactly. Between his lean face and his weather-stained cloak, he looks kind of like he could be, what, a vagabond, a traveler? Um, uh, uh, okay, so Cecilia's saying, now, we should remember, he was with his girlfriend and the in-laws last night at the party, so his hair's not going to be awful, right? Agreed. Agreed. But, again, I'm just saying... We don't get our attention drawn to his hair like our attention is drawn to Boromir's hair. So, um, yeah, for Thoughtless, I agree. Lean probably doesn't scream great warrior. He probably does not look extremely... Uh, I don't think Aragorn... Aragorn is clearly not brawny, right? Um, uh, and he may even not... He may even look not well-fed. That is... That seems to me very possible. Um... Uh, 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 Matt, that seems to me a perfectly sensible um, uh, conclusion there. Um, so anyway, Boromir's wondering who this guy is, but he is assuming that this guy has something to do with Minas Tirith. And so Boromir's first thought is, I've been sent here to meet this dude, right? This guy? We had one imperative, right? There was one command given to us by that dream, and it was to seek the sword, and the sword that was broken uh, turns out to belong to this guy. So for me to meet this dude with a weather-stained cloak is why I've come, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... That... Both of those questions still seem to me rather neutral, 
That is, I don't think, I think we'd be going too far yet uh, to see Boromir as resistant or antagonistic in some way to Aragorn. Um, both, again, very sensible questions. Who are you and what have you to do with Minas Tirith? Um, but Aragorn doesn't answer. Elrond answers. Now, here we come to a point which I would be really interested. So, if I were doing a film adaptation of this scene, how you played this moment could really change things. We're given no external cues. L let me explain what I mean. Is there a pause? When Boromir says, who are you and what have you to do with Minas Tirith? Does Elrond jump in right away? Right? Does he immediately jump in with the answer? Does he cut Aragorn off and say that? Is there a pause in which Boromir says, he, uh, who are you and what have you to do with Minas Tirith? And Aragorn says nothing? And then Elrond answers? Like, what kind of facial expression is Aragorn making right now? What kind of facial expression is Boromir making right now? Right? Um, exactly, Chris. I we don't. Is Elrond waiting for Aragorn to declare himself, and he Elrond does it instead? Does Elrond cut in because he wants to take control of this narrative at this moment? Right? Is he intervening to prevent something? Or is he trying to foment something? You could do it either way, right? Um, you could do it either way. Um, <laughs> my meeting, my exposition, <laughs> says JJ. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. And... Uh, Ambrosius points out, the, we could think of the same thing the other way around. Is Aragorn letting Elrond to, to decide when to reveal crucial information, right? Um, Aragorn responds, notice, remember, uh, Boromir at least begged leave, even though he didn't wait to receive it, right, in order to interrupt Elrond. Aragorn just stands up and is like, boom, right? Aragorn says, here's the moment, right? He takes it upon himself, to answer, uh, you know, to basically fulfill at least that part of this prophecy, right? Um, anyway, like I said, there are so many ways that you could play this. You could play this as Aragorn being really humble. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He's not going to make a fuss. He's not going to fight with Boromir, like, even in... Like, He's not going to get into a posturing match with Boromir. You could do it that way, right? Um, I don't know. We don't know any of those factors, right? Um, what we get is the mere fact that it is Elrond who responds. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And he is descended through many fathers from Isildur, Elendil's son of Minas Ithil. He is the chieftain of the Dúnedain in the north, and few are now left of that folk. 
Okay. Yes, Kate, I was thinking a very similar thing. Um, Kate points out that in the poem, of course, immediately after the sword that was broken comes counsels taken, and that's Elrond's department, right? Yes, exactly. Now's the time for the taking of counsels. Now's the time for uh, the wisdom of the wisest of lore masters, Elrond, the half-elven, uh, from Imladris, right, as Denethor knows of. Um, uh, Elrond makes a statement, naming him first. Which, by the way, I don't want to overlook the significance of that, right? Think about Elrond's words for a second. Um, that is, he could have said that in lots of different ways, right? Who are you and what have you to do with Minas Tirith? Who's he? Oh, he's, you know, the heir of Elendil. Uh, he's the guy. He's the guy who will be king of Gondor. I mean, like, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of ways that he could have framed that. He begins by saying, "He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn." He identifies him by his personal name, and who his father was. Not because Boromir is supposed to know that or recognize that. Boy, I will never forget that. That is that is the experience of seeing Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring movie in the theaters for the first time when Boromir recognizes Aragorn's name and I'm like, what? Anyway, I'd like, whew, yeah. One of those moments that sticks out at me and my like remembering of my experience the first time I saw the film. Anyway, it's not that he's supposed to uh, recognize the name. Um, but um, I think that it is significant that he begins with a personal introduction. Boromir, meet Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Um, uh, and then he explains why, why. Here's the answer to who he is. In fact, if you look at it, he is directly answering in order the two questions that Boromir asked. Who are you? He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. That's the answer to your first question. What have you to do with Minas Tirith? Here's the answer to that question. He is descended through many fathers from Isildur Elendil's son of Minas Ithil. That's what he has to do with Minas Tirith. Now, as somebody was just alluding to, yeah, Fourth Dauntless. Um, uh, the reference to Minas Ithil is to me the most interesting element of that whole sentence. I think it's important that he introduces him by his personal name. Um, he introduces him, that is to say, first as a man, as a person, that is, and second as, as an individual, and then second by his lineage. Um, but even when he explains his lineage, descended through many fathers from Isildur, Elendil's son, Now, there's a lot of ways he could have ended that sentence. He could have said, from Isildur, son of Elendil, the king, right? Son of Elendil, king of all the Numenorians, right? You know, a, a, a high king of Arnor and Gondor, right? There's a lot of ways um, which would have been rather pointed, right, 
in which he could have ended that, but he doesn't do any of those things. He identifies Isildur twice, right? He is descended through many fathers from Isildur. We're essentially kind of told two things, right? He's descended through many fathers from Isildur. He's the heir of Isildur. Point number one. Point number two. Who is Isildur? And that seems obvious, like Boromir knows who Isildur is. Yeah, but again, there's lots of ways that could be framed. And the way he chooses to frame it is in two ways. One, Elendil's son. That's who Isildur was. He's also Isildur of Minas Ithil. Which is an interesting way to answer the question, what have you to do with Minas Tirith? I'm the heir of Isildur. You know, the guy who set up the sister city to your city. Right? I mean, that's what Minas Ithil is, or was, to Gondor. And in some ways, because Isildur never reigned in Gondor, right? Isildur was never king in Gondor. Yes, he was the high king after Elendil died, but he never ruled in Gondor. He passes uh, the kingship um, to Meneldil, the son of Anarion, his brother, right? Um, so Isildur himself wouldn't be thought of first and foremost as king, right? Uh, he would, be, I mean, the, the, it would not at all be surprising if the primary association with Isildur was as the founder of Minas Ithil, right? Uh, if they think of, because remember, that's kind of how it was at first. You had Isildur and Anarion down in the south, and you had Elendil up in the north, right? Isildur and Anarion established those two cities, right? Minas Ithil and Minas Anor. And again, things have gone downhill since then, both in Minas Ithil and in Minas Anor. Both of them have changed their names, right? And neither one of them really for the better. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, Exactly, Trifle. We do have Anarion and Isildur sort of joint ruling Gondor before the War of the Last Alliance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we do have... that. There is sort of that. But again, like, I don't think... Is the first thought the king? Right? But I can notice how the word king isn't mentioned anywhere in that sentence either. So I do think that he... Elrond, I mean, is... To use your phrase, uh, Mad Violin is sidestepping dynastic conflict here, right? He is not. He is choosing. Elrond is choosing not to rub that into the face of Boromir when he introduces him, right? Um, again, think of the way that that gets done in the movie, right? How remember when movie Legolas says, "You owe him your allegiance," right? It's like, okay, like, um, movie Legolas, bad diplomat. Book Elrond, good diplomat, right? Um, that, that is not the way to make friends uh, and, uh, and sort of establish that thing. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, Elrond does seem to be being very careful. Notice he's not dodging it, though. Again, that's hence the purpose, I think, um, for the two things that he's the two ways in which 
Isildur is being identified here, right? Isildur of Minas Ithil, that kind of non-threatening co-ruler in the past, right? That, you know, um, you have an ally, right? Just as Minas Anor used to have Minas Tirith, or sorry, as Minas Anor used to have Minas Ithil, right? Across the river um, as its mirror and its ally, right? So now you have the south and the north. You have, you know, the, the people of Gondor and you have the Dunedain, the rangers of the north, Right. And so they are going to come to your, you know, they're going to come to your aid uh, like the people of Minas Ithil would have come to the aid of the people of Minas Honor back in the day. In one sense, it seems like that's kind of the subtext of his raising the name of Minas Ithil here. Um, Think of him not as your as the one to whom you owe allegiance. Think of him as your, you know, partner. Right. Uh, Your assistance. Um, but he does also say he is Elendil's son. And there is no question what Elendil's position is in Gondor, right? Now, Elendil didn't spend much time in Gondor, right? So it's not like they heavily... But he's Elendil, right? He is the High King, and he's never anything but the High King. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um and you're right, Matt. Strictly speaking, Aragorn has a claim on the throne of Gondor. He isn't king until he's crowned, so nobody's going to introduce him as king. And so I agree, Matt. It's it's not only unpolitic, it's uh, wildly premature uh, for movie Legolas to say you owe him your allegiance. Like, n- actually, no, that is not true. Nobody owes him anything until he gets the crown, right? Yes, he's got a claim on the crown, and a good claim on the crown. Um But um, he, uh, yes, it is uh, wildly premature to be talking about allegiance. Um, Now, Penloth, you're absolutely correct that the other other thing that Elrond is doing here, of course, is um, not stating the fact of the full significance of who Aragorn is, but stating the evidence for the fact, right? Um, Yes, yes. and that is interesting, Matt, thinking about um, raising the issue of Minas Ithil uh, and the few Dunedain that are associated from the Rangers of the North, uh, uh, paralleling Minas Tirith with its decreasing population. Um, especially, of course, remembering Elrond's own words about how Gondor is declining and waning, right? Um, which, of course, seemed in large part to provoke Boromir's uh, uh, response in the first place. Um, but, um, anyway, okay, but going on to Elrond's second sentence, he is the chief of the Dunedain in the north, and few are now left of that folk. The only title, he, so he's identified, what's his name? Who is he, right? We're told who, like, from a genealogical standpoint, his significance, he is descended through many fathers from Isildur. And now we're being we're give, being given his title, right? What is his current title? He is the chief of the Dunedain of the North. That's his job, right? So we've got his name, his lineage, and his current job, right? Um, I'm imagining, uh, you know, his resume, right? Um, work experience, chief of the Dunedain of the North, you know, from... Uh, I uh, forget the 
date at which uh, Arathorn died right until the present. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, but again, the thing that interests me is where Elrond goes after that. Stating his job title is very sensible. Who is he? Why should you care, apart from the fact that he's the heir of Isildur, is few are now left of that folk. Okay, so, JJ, that is such a big question and a really complicated one to answer. JJ's question is, how big a significance would Dunedain, the word Dunedain, have for Boromir? Um, Really complicated. Um, And this is especially complicated by the way in which the story changes over time. Um, That is to say... He is the chief of the Dunedain in the north, and few are now left of that folk. Is um, a question. So that is a question that meant something, meant one thing when Tolkien first wrote this chapter, and it comes to mean another thing later on. Um, I'm going to emphasize. I'm going to emphasize the latter primarily, but I'll mention the former. I'll mention what it meant the first time. Tolkien wrote that. Um, when in the very first, con- the very first, so Gondor was invented in the Council of Elrond, essentially. Um, uh, when the ring sets out from the Shire, uh, as far as we can tell, the journey, it's not, it's not really obvious that Tolkien had thought much beyond the Hobbit map essentially, when he was imagining the world. Um, There's very little evidence that that Tolkien had really thought beyond, again, picture the Hobbit map. Um, That was pretty much the map that he seems to have been pretty much dealing with when he first got to Rivendell. Remember that the trip to Rivendell was kind of conceived as being the halfway point of the story. He says things like that in his letters to his publisher. When he gets to, he's doing the Council of Elrond and he's like, halfway there, a few more chapters, right? I'm, I, like, I'm, I'm definitely in the downhill stretch now. Um, and again, I believe that he meant that. Of course, Tony will be quick to remind people of all the things like that that I used to say earlier on in this class, right? Um, I get it, right? I totally get it. Um, so again, when Tolkien was first writing the story, that was the concept that he had. So he invented, he didn't invent Rohan until he got there, and he didn't invent, um, he didn't invent uh, uh, Gondor until we got to this point. So the the whole question of like, who is this guy, and uh, where's he from, and um, what exactly is the relationship? So the original. Um, the original story of the Numenorians and the people of Gondor uh, went like this. Um, there were the Dunedain. There were like the natives of Gondor and there were the Dunedain. When the Dunedain came from Numenor, that is like, you know, in their small number of boats, there's a small number of them, right? Um, so... Gondor was a Numenorean kingdom in the sense that the people who already lived there took them in as leaders in a pattern that we see many times in Tolkien's world, right? Just as the green elves of Mirkwood have a Sindar king, just as the elves of Lothlorien have a Sindar and have Sindar and Noldor rulers, right? This kind of thing happens quite a bit, right? Um, 
yes. Christy says, Aragorn's just this guy, you know? Um, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, um, so, um, the, um, they had accepted the Dunedain uh, as their rulers. Uh, but then the honeymoon period was over, right? The story was, again, the original story, was that the people of Minas Tirith had rebelled. The non-Dunedain populace of Minas Tirith uh, had cast out the Dunedain. They kicked them out of town and, went and, and, and they went north and they established Fornost. That's where the North Kingdom came from in the original version. It was the city of the Dunedain that they went and built themselves after they got the boot from Gondor. So the return of the king is not just the story of, like, your long-lost heir come back home again, right, that you've been waiting for and given up whatever come. It wasn't like that at all. It was the heir of those kings which you chose to banish, will you have them back? Right? And the answer was going to be uh, yes. Um, in fact, Aragorn, in the, as I recall, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, the details in which one came first, if I remember correctly, in the very first detail, so the Lord of Minas Tirith, Denethor, but I don't think he was named that yet. But anyway, the, he was just called the Lord of Minas Tirith originally. Uh, when the Lord of Minas Tirith dies, and he dies earlier on uh, in the story, in the first version, um, he... They, they, the people of Minas Tirith, decide who's going to rule. Now, first of all, Boromir survived. Boromir's there, right? Boromir's there in Minas Tirith with Aragorn. And uh, the people now, yeah, so praise Moyer is saying that possession of a broken sword is no basis for a system of government. It's funny you should make that joke because they do, in fact, hold an election. Uh, the people of Minas Tirith vote for Aragorn. Um, minute, Boromir loses the vote. Um, and the people don't, some of the people want Boromir, but more of them, they, they, they so the, the sort of the story is that the people, um, exactly, JJ, you do vote for kings in Minas Tirith, apparently, right? They're not living in a dictator, in a dictatorship. Um, uh, they so anyway, so yeah, so there was an election, so the the drama again was not like long lost heir returns. That was not the core story of the return of the king. The core story of the return of the king was a story of reconciliation, right? The people of Gondor, the modern people of Gondor, uh, basically like reversing the decision that their forefathers had made in exiling the Numenorians and welcoming the Numenorians back. And so that's how Aragorn becomes king. Um, so um, anyway, so that's, um, that's the original story. So when Tolkien first wrote this conversation, um, that's what this meant. Right. And by the way, uh, Boromir becomes like he like things go badly after Boromir loses the election uh, and he like betrays them and like become like, you know, joins Saruman, who is still the chief enemy down there. Saruman is like there's no Battle of Helm's Deep. Saruman is fighting at Minas Tirith. Um, anyway, whatever. 
point is, um, that's the story that was in Tolkien's mind originally. And again, I wanted to I wanted to mention that, right? Um, because it's kind of you can still sort of hear some of the echoes of that here. But back forth, Dauntless. If sorry, I think I might have forgotten if it was you or somebody else. Now already forgetting, but anyway, back to who for to whoever was raising the point about the Dunedain and what does that mean to Boromir? Um, it no longer has that particularly charged meaning, right? Oh yes, those people that we booted out in times past. Um, it is going to be associated with the ancient glory of Gondor. We see. Um, uh, it was JJ. Thank you, Fort Thomas. Um uh, right, so we know how much the ancient glory of Gondor means to Boromir, right? Uh, do not think, right, that the glory of Gondor is past and that all its its dignity is forgotten, right? The glory and dignity of Gondor from its time of establishment by the Numenorians, right, that has not waned. We modern Gondorians are still directly connected with that. It is still alive in the modern children of Gondor was kind of where he started the speech that he just finished. Right. Um, So therefore I have to think that when Elrond says he is the chief of the Dúnedain in the North, that's going to be significant to Boromir, that Boromir is There's going to be some respect that Boromir is going to show for that. He's going to care that Boromir is one of the Dúnedain. That's why I find his last comment interesting. And few are now left of that folk. Why does Elrond add that? It seems totally unnecessary to add that detail. Why emphasize the dwindling numbers of the Dunedain? Why emphasize that? Um, Musical, I can. I mean, Musical says it's for the reader. It certainly does convey something to the reader, though. I'd say that's already been conveyed. Er, uh, Gandalf explained that, right? Um, remember the whole like, you know, I. I He's one of the old kings conversation, right? Gandalf makes it pretty clear that there aren't so many of the descendants of the old kings still around. Um, <laughs> going fast, get them while they're hot. Yeah, something like that. Um, uh, yeah, well, praise. I was thinking the same thing. Uh, that like you know, there's Elrond going on about the 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 you know harping on about the diminishment of the men of the West, right? Like, oh man, like he's beating a dead horse here when it comes to the decline of Numenor, right? And uh, the men of the West. Um, uh, so is he being uh, is Elrond being is like being an equal opportunity <laughs> denigrator of the South Kingdom and the North Kingdom, right? Yeah, things are falling off everywhere, right? Um, now I think that it's an interesting uh, um, point, uh, Fourth Dauntless, that it does emphasize that there's no military help coming from that quarter. Like, don't get the wrong impression, Boromir. Um, he's the chief of the Dúnedain in the north. But that doesn't mean all that much, right? I mean, it's important, like, for, you know, lineal and political, you know, purposes. But, I mean, from a military standpoint, 
you know, let's just be honest here. He's uh, he's not got much that he can uh, that he can do there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I certainly agree with that. Um, uh, to emphasize that he's not going to help in that way. Um, uh, <laughs> um, Interesting. Frumius Bujim points out that, uh, you know, he's the only one around here that we see, and his sword is broken. Yeah, the broken sword would seem almost metaphorical in a different sense, right? Um, yeah, he's not, it's not military strength that he's going to bring. Um, why should we seek a broken sword? Yeah, why indeed? Why seek a broken sword? Uh, I mean, a broken sword surely is not a very useful thing under almost any circumstances. I mean, swords are kind of famous for only being useful for war, right? I mean, you can't repurpose a sword, really, for much any other uh, purposes other than fighting with. And if it's broken, you can't even do that. So a broken sword is unusually useless, right? I mean, a broken spear you at least have a pointed stick left over, right? And everybody knows you can do very useful things with a pointed stick. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a, a broken sword, not very, very useful at all. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. Good. I, I see. Mad Violence already anticipated me in the pointed stick joke. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, exactly, Trifle. It would have been useful to more useful to, to save the shards of, of Iglos than the shards of Narsil at the end of the day. Um, but um, yes, it's true. It's true. Uh, Fred Rock Paper... Uh, and uh, uh, JJ, that it, it is always possible to beat a broken sword into a plowshare. There is some uh, rumored precedent for that sort of thing. Um, but again, notice you still have to beat it into it, right? You can't just use it. Uh, it's got to be repurposed explicitly. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Few are now left of that folk. It does also, as somebody was emphasizing before, um, it does also set him apart, like Aragorn is kind of a big deal. I also wonder, I also wonder, would Boromir hear that last part as a dig against him again, right? Um, could we gloss, and few are now left of that folk, to mean, and as I pointed out before, very few are now left of the Dunedain, right? I mean, we know there aren't many of pure Numenorean blood left in the south, right? I mean, the glory of Numenor has waned in the south, so and it only survives in just a few folks left here in the north like Aragorn, right? <laughs> and you, sir, are no Dunedain. Uh, exactly, exactly. Again, I don't think that that's what he means. I mean, when he says that folk, I mean, he's just said Dunedain in the north. It's possible that he could mean Dunedain Generally, right. Um, exactly. Rayburns was just thinking the same thing, that Elrond does qualify Dunedain in the north. Um, and of the northern Dunedain, there are indeed precious few left of that folk. Um, but anyway, um, 
I wonder, given Boromir's state of sensitivity that he's been in ever since Elrond's last speech, and now being confronted with this unknown factor, uh, and now having it presented to him that the guy holding the broken sword that he was sent to seek turns out to be the lineal descendant of Isildur, son of Elendil, uh, Boromir might already be thinking, be feeling just a bit defensively. Um, yeah. Um, now, now the passage takes a sudden and totally unexpected turn. Frodo breaks in again. This is Frodo's second interruption of the council. He interrupted once to marvel at Elrond's age, right? As he's sort of has that kind of like fanboy moment where he's now realizing that he's talking to somebody who's thousands and thousands and saw the last war battle, the last alliance himself. Now he interrupts again. Then it belongs to you and not to me at all, cried Frodo in amazement springing to his feet as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. Um, <laughs> Prey says, here goes Frodo again, enjoying the taste of foot. Yeah, okay, no, this is, but this is really interesting. Why is this Frodo's first thought? So, yes, Frodo is here for the first time learning. He knew that... So he already had revelation number one from Gandalf when he, Frodo, was still on his sickbed, right? That he was one of the people of the old kings, right? He knows that he is a Dunedain. That was a shock enough, right? I thought he was only a ranger. I thought he was just this, like, scruffy wilderness dude who we thought was a bad egg and turned out to be not a bad egg. So now I'm forced to promote him in my mind from guy who's not so bad after all to, oh, one of the heirs of the old kings. That's, that puts him in a different category, right? Um, and now it is suddenly being revealed to him that he is in fact the heir of Elendil, the heir of Isildur. Um, why does that make Frodo not only say, not only think it belongs to you and not to me, but to spring to his feet as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. Why would he expect that? Yeah, yeah, Carita says, if I'm Frodo, I might be relieved to be out of the hot seat, quest-wise. Yeah, yeah. See, okay. I absolutely... No, I am very... Um, yeah, see... So yeah, I, I, I wonder if he scattered cushions again here uh, when he's doing that. But um, okay. That this would seem to tell us something about Frodo's own relationship with the ring seems a decent premise, right? So yes, I agree that the idea, uh, you know, Matt and that I think Mike and Fort Dauntless have also been talking about, about... Um, is this evidence that he's feeling defensive in some way? Um, it doesn't sound that way. I mean, I can imagine ways in which this speech and these actions can be made consistent with feeling defensive. 
about possession of the ring. But yeah, it reads to me praise, and Carita, as I think that you were suggesting as well, um, and Mark too, to like sound almost the opposite of that, like relief. Um, like he's hoping that the ring is going to be demanded at once. Or as Carita said, like he's going to be off the hot seat. He's going to be let off the hook. Right? Maybe this isn't my responsibility at all. Um, but yeah, okay. I have to admit, I never in my life imagine that Frodo was springing to his feet lest he need to sprint out of the room. I hear you that um, uh, springing to your f- you don't usually spring to your feet in relief. I get that. Um, but I'm not sure relief need necessarily be the emotion that we're talking about here. Um, amazement is what is described. He springs to his feet in amazement. Immediately drawing the connection. Um, I never once pictured when he springs to his feet that he might be springing to his feet uh, and his eyes darting to where the closest exit is. I... Um, I don't, I'm not sure I buy that. Um, I'm not sure I buy that. Okay, let's think this through. First, whatsoever his reaction to it, why is he thinking of it? Why is he thinking, uh, he, he has, let's start with the pure fact, right? The pure fact that he is establishing a claim to ownership of the ring by Aragorn. The fact that he discovers that Aragorn is the, is the heir of Isildur immediately makes him think he's, a, he's got a claim on the ring. Then it belongs to you and not to me at all. Um, okay, so that mere fact would seem... Uh, hmm, okay. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <sighs> Sorry, people are talking in like five different directions here. You know me. I want to work through this meticulously, which means I'm only going to think at one about one thing at a time. So you're welcome to post comments about other things other than the thing I'm thinking about. But if you do, what's going to happen is it's going to scroll past and I'll probably never even read it. Just caution. That's what's going to happen. Okay. So here's what I'm focused on. I'm focused on why the link, not what it means, not how he feels about it, but what is the link? Frodo would seem to be, yes, Kate, exactly. He's been listening to the history of the last alliance, right? And he has, uh, I mean, like, remember Boromir, you know, Isildur kept it, right? Um, and then Elrond saying, yes, Isildur kept it, as should not have been. Um, and, okay, 
so he leaps to the conclusion that since Aragorn is the descendant of Isildur, distant descendant as he knows full well, Aragorn, that it belongs to him, that's his word, right? It belongs to you. It belongs to you. He inherited it in a manner from Bilbo. Not after Bilbo's death, right? Um, but um, it was left with Bilbo's last will and testament, right? In the same packet. Um, uh, so, obviously the idea that Aragorn has an ownership claim over the ring is premised on the idea that Isildur had some kind of rightful ownership and should have been able to leave it to his heirs. And, like, that essentially there's an implicit tag on the ring that says, if found, please return to to Isildur or his representatives, right? Um, That's a pretty extreme ownership claim for somebody whom Frodo knows or has just recently been told looted it from the corpse of Sauron. Um, So, anyway, um, it was claimed as Weregild, but that's weak. And Elrond pointed out that that was weak. I mean, remember Elrond said, yes, he kept it as should not have been. So, the connection between the ring and Isildur, which Frodo has just been listening to Elrond explaining, also contained Elrond's own emphasis that Isildur should not have kept the ring. Has Elendil... Not Elendil. Elendil had nothing to do with it. Um, Elrond himself has called into question the viability of... Not viability, but appropriateness of Isildur's ownership of the ring. Um, so it's, um, anyway, if Aragorn were going to prosecute his claim, right, I would think that his case would be a pretty bad one, actually, right? Um, of all the lawyering that is ever done about ownership of the ring, and there's quite a bit, Right, Gollum does it. Bilbo does it. Um, Isildur did it with the Ware Guild from the beginning. Right, with all of the 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 sort of justifications that people come up with, Aragorn deserves it because Isildur had it, and he's the heir of Isildur, and so he should have it. That seems super super weak to me. Like I I that's um uh weird actually. Like, weirdly weak. And I was going to say it's weak in a way which reminds me of the kind of weak legalistic justifications for possession of the ring that we see ring bearers, be- ring bearers using all the time. Um, except it's not like it. It is it. That is, it's derived from it. Um Isildur's own claim to ownership of the ring is of exactly that sort, right? Um, uh, So, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Um, yes, I, I think Frodo has had it longer than Isildur did. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, it's odd to me. So, the, 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 the oddity that I am pointing to, that I am trying to understand the significance of, or, or to sort of scrutinize and see if I'm right in reacting this way, my first reaction is that f- what Frodo says is weird. Just weird. Weird because it's like not reasonable. It's hard to imagine how any reasonable person could hear the, all the stories that Frodo has heard and emerge from that with the conclusion it belongs to Aragorn. That's odd to me. Therefore, I do think it is an oddity that needs an explanation. So, now I am prepared to think about the two potential explanations. Um, We know that he is not just saying this, that his, what he utters, then it belongs to you and not to me at all. This is not just pro forma on Frodo's part. This is not, he's not, he's not blowing smoke here. We know that this is an expression of his genuine and apparently spontaneous emotion and feeling at the time, right? Because the narrator emphasizes that this is not just what he says, but it's what he feels, right? Um, as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. Um, so he is thinking and feeling, apparently, like, down to his toes, that Aragorn has a claim to the ring and that that claim, all of this has been a setup for this. This is the climax. The cli- what, what the council has been building to, to this point, has been establishing Aragorn's claim for the ring and... Frodo's meant to give it to him. Right? That's apparently where Frodo's brain is when Aragorn's lineage has been revealed. Okay. But that, I posit, is weird. And that that seems to me a not normal response. Like, I don't see any... Like, nobody else seems to be thinking that. Aragorn certainly is not thinking that. Um, uh, and um, I, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so if my presumption, or not my presumption, if my premise, that's that's the word I'm looking for, if my premise that this is a weird thing for Frodo to be thinking, and that probably very few other people in the room have made this particular connection, and that this feels like a kind of strange leap to make, that Aragorn has an, a right to the ring and, and is going to demand it from Frodo. Um, if that's the case, if it's, if, if, if it, again, if it is the case that that connection is strange, why does he make it? What prompts him to make it? Clearly, Frodo's own relationship with the ring is involved here. Um, 
it is not hard to understand why Frodo's, as uh, uh, somebody was pointing about, uh, pointing out a while back, why Frodo's mind would immediately leap to the ring. Literally nobody else is thinking about the ring yet, right? Boromir is still like, hang on a second, we were still on the sword that is broken line, right? We have not resolved the sword that is broken part. We're still moving our way down the poem, halfling, right? Your, 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 your time is still another six or seven lines from now, right? Um, but... Um, Anyway, but again, Frodo can be forgiven if the ring is a little bit more prominently in his thought than it is in the thought of somebody like Boromir, right? Yet. (laughs) Um, I do not... um, I do not think, Kate, that I am, am in fact, going to posit that this is a ring-induced offer by Frodo. It seems to me that there are the two, so there are two explanations that we have essentially offered so far. One is that having made the connection because he is indeed influenced by the ring and the ring and the question of the ownership of the ring indeed weighs heavily on his mind, um, that either he is having a moment which is like a combination of the moment in the Hall of Fire when he didn't want to give it to Bilbo, he didn't want to show it to Bilbo, combined with the moment that he had in the House of Tom Bombadil, where he is tempted to run away and leave, right? It is possible to read it that way, right? That um, when he says, um, then it belongs to you and not to me at all, that he is looking around feeling, you know, that he's looking around in a wild surmise feeling panic, and that that's it is his panic about the thought that a claim for ownership by somebody else is being put forward uh, upon the ring and that he this he strongly dislikes this fact right that he's having a strong emotional reaction to that it i do not think that that is in any way an unlikely or impossible interpretation i'm not sure i buy it i do not favor that interpretation let me explain to you why that doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel right to me because I cannot make that fit with all of the things that we see in this paragraph. Uh, First of all, the claim for ownership... Here, let me... um, um, Let me approach this a different way, actually. I'll come back to what I was just about to say. Let me do let me play this game. Let me play the game where I say what would I expect this paragraph to look like if that was if that were, let me say, conditionally, if that were what this passage were trying to convey, what would make me feel really confident in that interpretation? What would be there to make me feel really confident in it? Um the thing that I think is most consistent with that reading is the as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. The idea that the sort of fantasy image of someone else demanding the ring from him and that that fantasy image is eliciting a strong emotional response from him, that is consistent with that his own possessive desire of the ring. No question. No question. But, but... um. That would be consistent, but I would expect to see more of that. And 
his words, the words that he said, would seem to me, like, again, since this is clearly a spontaneous outburst by Frodo, right? He is giving voice to his immediate feelings, it seems. This does not seem to be a... Unlike Boromir's speech, this is not a calculated piece of rhetoric on Frodo's part, right? This is a very spontaneous uh, uh, explosion, verbal explosion, by Frodo. So I would expect that verbal explosion to be quite revealing of what is going on, very suggestive of what's going on in his heart, right? And so therefore I would expect the verbal explosion to allude to his own possession possession of the ring, right? Um, maybe he would use a possessive pronoun. That might, would I would expect him to use a possessive pronoun of the ring, right? Um, uh, like mine or my, right? I would expect him to, um, uh, again, those, um, yes, exactly, musical. The thing that he says is, then it belongs to you. Then it belongs to you. That idea is the very thing he would be resistant of. What does the rings, what does the possessive desire for the ring lead people to do again and again and again? It is to rationalize their own claim on the ring and de-emphasize anybody else's, right? Gollum obviously howsoever the truth of the riddle game might be, right? Whether it happened like Bilbo reported in the first edition of The Hobbit, or whether it happened as it was subsequently revealed, right? Whatsoever thing you might say about how legitimate or otherwise was Bilbo's acquisition of the ring, one can certainly say this. His acquisition of the ring, his claim to ownership of the ring, was certainly not more dubious than Gollum's in the first place. Right? He at least did not murder his friend and pry it out of his cold, dead hands. Right? Uh, so, I mean, like, that is a not a great claim on the ring that Gollum had. But again, does Gollum emphasize that? Does he think about that? No. Right? Instead, his focus is entirely on his own claim for the ring and how no one else's claim can compete. Right? He sees no parallel, right, uh, with... Um, he sees no parallel with uh, 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 between his acquisition of it and Bilbo's acquisition of it, right? Um, anyway, Frodo does not do that here. Frodo does not talk about his own possession of the ring. He does not talk about his own desire for the ring. He doesn't give any kind of rationalization. He doesn't offer the first resistance. to. You would think, again, ring-induced possessiveness always leads to rationalization, why you should have it, why it's at least okay, if not right and totally justified for you to retain your claim, right? Um, has anyone in the grip of ring-induced possessiveness ever stated someone else's claim for the ring? Ever even acknowledged it? That someone else had a claim on it that could possibly compete with their own? I see no precedent for that. And here's Frodo saying his first words, as Musical says, are, then it belongs to you. And his second words are, and not to me at all. It doesn't belong to me. He says in horror, 
shock, distress? No, amazement. Amazement. Um, so, this is why I don't hear. It doesn't feel to me to fit either half of what Frodo says. I, 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 again, I do concede that a possessive desire for the ring and a desire to prevent anybody else taking it, that reading is consistent with the end of the paragraph, with the description as if he expected the ring to be demanded at once. But I don't find it very comfortably consistent with what he actually says, or with the amazement that he has described as feeling when he springs to his feet. Um, yeah, Frumius Bujum says, You mean you dragged me across the wilderness when I could have just handed it to you weeks ago? I could be home by now! Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, maybe that's part of his amazement, right? Um, and why he's kind of so informal in his outburst, right? Th this does seem less like a contribution by Frodo to the council and more a personal thing between him and Strider. Like, what? <laughs> you, you, seriously? Now, this doesn't, to me, explain, though, why he makes the link in the first place. Which, again, still seems to me not at all obvious that Aragorn has a prima facie claim, legal claim, on the ring just because he's Isildur's distant heir. Um, yeah. Um, so, I, but I agree, Evil Dr. Cannon, Frodo's insight, if indeed I'm correct in saying that Frodo's first reaction, his first feeling, is entirely contrary, in a sense, to that general tendency. If, it's, if it is swimming upstream against, then it belongs, you know, to the possessiveness of the ring. Right? His first thing is to say, somebody else should have the ring. Not me! You're right. That is weird. I mean, I, I don't think, is there any precedent for any ring bearer ever saying anything like that? Right? Remember Gandalf saying that at most they toy with the idea of giving up the ring. Right? But has any ring bearer ever said this? Then it belongs to you and not to me. I don't think any ring bearer has ever said that. Um, so, a couple things here. Number one, now it is true, Frodo is an elf friend. Uh, Frodo is special in some ways. Um, could it be an act of foresight? It is, sorry, another uh, Twitter question there. It is possible. It is possible uh, that it um, is, that there's some kind of foresight here in some sense, but Again, I don't see anything that points in that direction explicitly here. Um, yeah, Mad Violinist is remembering, of course, the quote from Bilbo. Then it goes to Frodo. It goes to Frodo with all the rest, right? Um, but again, Chris, notice the difference between that statement: "It goes to Frodo with all the rest," and "It belongs to you and not to me at all." It doesn't belong to me at all. 100 degrees opposite of the traditional ring 
bearer claim, right? And Bilbo's statement, it goes to Frodo, um, is a an amazing act of will, but it's a mere relinquishing into someone else's power. I am willing to give this up and let Frodo have it, is to to bring yourself to that again, not uh, not underplaying how big a deal that was and what a triumph that Bilbo was able to do that. But it is still miles away from it belongs to you and not to me at all. I never had a claim on it. It's not my ring at all. It never was my ring. Um, that, I think, is, um, uh, is, is, to me, a very, very different thing. It's, it's, Bilbo doesn't renounce that he ever had a claim to it. Right. That's what Frodo is doing. It but doesn't belong to me at all. Right. Um, um, yeah, it's the at all, Chris, that I'm that I really lean on there. Not to me at all. It belongs to you. Present tense. Not it will belong to you. Not I'm handing it off to you. Not I give it now into your care, Aragorn. Right. But right now, even now, as I'm still holding it, it belongs to you. And not to me at all. I, I shouldn't even have it. Bilbo never said about the ring, I shouldn't even have it. It's just a question of how he was going to um, uh, deal with it, right? It was one of his possessions. Even, think about it, Chris, that you know, it goes to Frodo with all the rest of my possessions, of my things, right? The ring is still, he is still acknowledging that the ring is one of his things that he can dispose of in his will. Right? And to his heir. And that's what he's doing. And again, huge deal. Huge deal that he does that. But that's very different from it doesn't belong to me at all. Okay. Um, I agree. Frodo probably is. Um, Frodo probably is It's an interesting question, and interesting that it's, it's never really raised. What is Frodo's expectation? What does he think is going to happen today in the Great Council? He expects to show the ring, that we're finally going to talk about the ring. All the way along, I mean all the way from Chapter 2, from his conversation with Gandalf, what's his plan? What is Frodo's job? What is Frodo's quest? Answer, deliver the ring to Rivendell. Get the ring to Rivendell, right? There and back again. Um, his job is done once he delivers the ring. So I would imagine that it is true that when he woke up this morning, he might have said to himself, today's the day I finally finish my job. Today's the day... I hand over the ring. I give the ring into the keeping of the great and wise and good who can figure out what to do with it because I'm not made for perilous quests. Right? Um, that, 
everything from the now we had his uncertainty right he doesn't think it's going to be a there and back again quest he's thinking that he might be leaving in order to wander and never return now partly that seems to have to do with the fact that he's being hunted by spies and that even if he does give up the ring and go back that there are still going to be black riders seeking for baggins in the shire and so in order to keep the black riders from doing anything bad in the shire he's going to have to go on the lamb even if he gives up the ring um but anyway whatever um now, Fort Dauntless says if he's thinking that, he wasn't paying attention, uh, enough attention the last time he tried to hand it over. Yeah, agreed. Uh, there certainly is something at least potentially unrealistic in that, um, uh, in that idea. Uh, if he does still have that idea, I agree. Um, but, um, anyway, so... That Frodo is in some way more psychological... That Frodo should be, at this moment, more psychologically prepared to give up the ring than on any other average day, it would not be shocking. Because, again, as far as we know, based on everything that he said earlier on, um, when he set out on this journey, which he now thinks, believes that he has completed, um, he... um, he's, He's done his job, and this is the day that he finishes it, Right? Um, and now he finds that it's not just a question of him handing it over to somebody else who volunteers to take it but that he feels that somebody else has a claim on it and he's expecting the ring to be demanded that this is what it was building up to the climax of this meeting is going to be me handing this to Strider and I do think that there's an element of that could have been done more conveniently at numerous other points, right? But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do, yeah, Irindus, for exactly the reason, for the, for, for, for the reason of the passage that you're quoting about Frodo's great dread later on uh, at the actual end of the council, I don't want to speculate too far about what Frodo was anticipating, but I do want to remind all of us that this was the the quest to Rivendell to deliver the ring to the wise, was and you know to bring the ring into the keep into into the care and uh, to seek the counsel of the wise was Frodo's mission in the first place. Whether or not that is what he really believes or really wants. We don't have any necessary data. I don't think we get clear data to answer that question here. Um, his amazement can be explained by the surprise that he now feels that his old friend, not comparatively old friend, uh, uh, was gonna is gonna get it. That could contribute perhaps to his amazement. Um, the line about expecting the ring to be demanded at once also fits with the idea that this is at least one version of how he thought this council was going to go is in his mind, right? You know, sooner or later, what was going to happen in this council was I'm going to yield the ring to whatever doubtless more qualified person is going to be given the ring. Gandalf has already said the ring has to be taken to the cracks of doom. Right, Gandalf spilled that back in chapter two. Um, 
Frodo says, oh, well, I'm his immediate response to that was, I'm not built for perilous quests, right? Um, clearly, there's can be someone more qualified, and he's got to be looking around the table saying, almost everyone is more qualified than I, right? So, okay. Um, so this scenario that it's time to give up the ring, um, again, lots of reasons to think that this has been on his mind, that he was expecting that as, as at least a probable outcome of the day's events. Um, I do agree with you, Mad Violinist, that the word demanded is interesting. It is a harsh word for something you expect and believe should happen. Um, I agree. But again, his words don't betray any grudging of that demand that I can see. Indeed, they state what sounds to me like quite the opposite. It belongs to you and not to me at all. Um, so the springing to his feet, far from being a step towards the exit, the springing to his feet looks like he's springing to his feet because he's expecting to carry the ring, to, like to bring the ring to Aragorn right now. Right? Like it's, it's like, oh, so like deliver the ring. Well, oh, so you mean like right now? Holy cow. Okay. Right. Aragorn. Got it. It's you. Is it? Okay. Fine. Um, yeah. And good. You're right. Cosmic 93. Gandalf has already reconfirmed for Frodo that he possesses no special qualities for this. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, interesting yeah for thoughtless reads demand here in the same way as a king demands loyalty commands as by right but not necessarily harshly um, yes yes um, possibly possibly so I'm finally coming back around to the question of him feeling relieved. Is there a part of Frodo's mind that wants to be rid of the ring? Heck yeah. Absolutely. I think it is very easy to overstate the impact that the ring has on Frodo right now. Does the ring have its hooks in Frodo already? Absolutely. And we've seen lots and lots of evidence of that already. Right. Even just last night in the Hall of Fire, when Bilbo himself perceived it. Right. There's no question that the ring already has a grip on Frodo's mind. Gandalf himself confirmed that back in Bag End when Frodo couldn't throw it in the fireplace. But to say that the ring already has a, a hold on Frodo's mind is not the same as saying the ring is in control of Frodo's mind. Frodo certainly wants to give up the ring. He wants to be free of this. He was afraid that his journey was not going to turn out like Bilbo's. He didn't like the idea that he was not going on a there and back again journey, that he was going there and not coming back as far as he could tell. He didn't want to leave everything behind and go on the lamb for the rest of his life, right? Um, and Irindus, to peek ahead at that line that you quoted from the end of the chapter... We know that the feelings that he has about volunteering to be the more permanent ring bearer uh, are not 
altogether positive, to say the least, right? Um, so, yes, he absolutely, a very significant part of him, I think even most of his own mind, as it were, wants to be done with the ring. I mean, talk about your happily ever after versions of this story, as far as Frodo is concerned. I mean, remember how he said that he had kind of wanted to leave the Shire, but he had always imagined it like Bilbo's uh, journey or better, right? Um, this would be better if he delivered the ring uh, to Rivendell. And then, so like, remember Bilbo had to go past Rivendell all the way over the mountains and, and through the, uh, 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 through the forest and, and then into the dragon's lair and everything else before finally returning home. Boy, if, if this could just be a round trip to Rivendell, oh man, right? I mean, they wouldn't even be uh, holding his funeral by the time he gets home, right? So, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, clearly, to a I don't want to forget about the fact that, yes, like, we can't think about the control of the ring over, uh, over Frodo as a, as a black and white thing, as a completely binary situation, right? Yes, the ring influences him. Yes, it has a hold on him. And yes, we can see plenty of evidence of that. But that is still, um, that is still, like a relatively minor voice in his mind, right? Um, it is not in any way the dominant uh, form. And as Kate points out, even Gollum has a love-hate relationship with the ring, as Gandalf says, right? He desires it and hates it. Um, Frodo can't understand that yet when Gandalf raises that, right, Kate? Um, Surely the ring was his precious, says Frodo. Right, uh, not understanding how he could both love it and hate it in that way, I bet even now Frodo would understand that better than he understood it back in chapter two, right? Um, but, um, but yes. So, is there a very significant part of his mind that wants to give over the ring? Yes. And would that part of his mind be happy to give it over to Aragorn? Heck yeah, absolutely, it would. Um, this is a no-brainer. This is a happier resolution of this story than I ever imagined, right? I thought I was going to have to give it up to some elf lord or other that I'd never met before, but no, right? My friend Strider, cool. He's a great guy, right? Um, yeah, so, again, I don't find that relief any, any, anything, like, anything unlikely at all. If there's evidence, if this speech shows any sign of the ring's hold on him, it's that he's immediately thinking about the question of possessive possession at all, right? That, again, I, I would be willing to say that the, um, at least sort of indirectly, the effects of the ring on Frodo's mind might be betrayed by the fact that he's even asking the question of who has a right to the ring at all. Uh, when again, as I say, I don't feel like an objective listener would have come away with that conclusion from hearing the story of Isildur and then the fact of uh, Elrond's, or sorry, Aragorn's descendant, descent from him. Um, but, um, um, but yeah, Brandon, exactly. If Frodo can feel that Aragorn has a better claim, maybe he hopes it will help him give the ring away. Maybe, maybe. That's a really interesting, again, 
that the part of his mind, the very important, in fact, I would even suspect dominant part of his mind that really wants to give the ring away would cling to that, right? It would be like counter-rationalizing, <laughs> right? Oh, great, yeah, it's Aragorn's ring anyway, right? Oh, perfect, yeah. No, this couldn't, could not have turned out any better than it's currently turning out. I'm going to spring to my feet. Where do I sign, right? You want it right now? Right, let's do this. Um, um yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 will it actually be that easy? Would he really run over to Aragorn and be like, here, you know, see ya, you know? Uh, no, I don't, I think it would be, I think it would be harder than that. Um, uh, for him to do. Yeah. Um, But he, but he found that he had already put the ring back in his pocket. Yes, I expect there would be an experience something like that. Yeah, when it actually came to the moment of handing it over, it would be different. Um, just like Bilbo thinking that giving away a bunch of birthday presents would make giving the ring away easier. Evil Dr. Cannon, absolutely. It didn't make it easier in the long run, right? Yes. Uh, and there, too, we can see that kind of division. The division between Bilbo's... He wanted to give away the ring. He planned to give away the ring. He set all of these things in motion in order to um, make it easier for himself to give the ring away, right? Knowing that it was going to be hard for him to do that. Um, uh, Yeah, but you're right, Lincoln. Frodo doesn't, in fact, come to the point of handing it over. It's one thing to spring to your feet, just as it's one thing to plan a whole party and give away all these presents, right? It's another thing, actually. To, it's even one thing to put the ring in an envelope with your will and put it on the mantelpiece. It's another thing to let go of it with your hand, back away, and walk out the door, right, as Bilbo found. Um, so I agree, the test had not yet come. And what would have come had that test occurred, we don't know. I have to imagine that Frodo, it would have been non-trivial for Frodo to overcome that. But again, I don't, having said that, I do not think that his words are expressing that possessiveness. I think they're expressing the opposite of it. Um, um, Aragorn's response, now it's time for the next paragraph. It does not belong to either of us, said Aragorn, but it has been ordained that you should hold it for a while. What a very interesting and careful speech by Aragorn. It does not belong to either of us, he insists. Right? Aragorn's response is not only to deny his own claim on the ring, but to emphasize that neither one of them, yes, no ownership at all, Trifle, is his emphasis. Right? It is not about ownership, Frodo. This is not an ownership question. I don't own the ring. I don't claim the ring. And he even undermines... He doesn't say something like, it doesn't belong to either of us, but it's yours for now. Right? He doesn't say that. He, he, he says you should hold it for a while. You're just holding it, Frodo. You don't own it. 
So he's denying any ownership of it. He's also reminding Frodo, you don't own it, right? You don't have a claim for it. Um, but of course, you guys, I'm here, here I am deliberately avoiding the big word that you guys want to talk about. Um, ordained. Ordained is a big word. I agree, ordained is a big word. And, but I wanted to, the reason I didn't start talking about this sentence by talking about that word is um, that that word is at the center of his statement. It does not belong to either of us, but it has been ordained that you should hold it for a while. It doesn't belong to either of us. You should hold it for a while. That's the beginning and the end, and the ordained is in the middle, right? Um, I didn't want to start with the ordained because I don't want to get so distracted by the fact that he's talking about um, a higher power here. Yes, he's definitely talking about a higher power. Do we know exactly what he means by this? No. Um, Aragorn doesn't say, but he might as well say, like Gandalf back in chapter 2, I can put it no plainer than to say that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker. Um, yes, of course, you darn well could say it more clean, plainly than that Gandalf, as I've said many times. Um, and Aragorn also is being indirect, right? But yes, Catriona, that is exactly, exactly the point. I don't want to get so distracted by the fact that Aragorn is pointing to a higher power. Whether he's referring to the Valar or whether he's referring to Iluvatar himself in some ways doesn't matter here, right? What matters is he's pointing to a higher authority, and what matters is what the higher authority has ordained, right? And Catriona, just as you say, this translates to you're the appointed guardian, even, I would say, the appointed holder, not the owner, right? It doesn't belong. The belonging word, that's a big word. That's an important word. It belongs to you and not to me. Ixnay on the Elong Bay, Frodo, right? Let's not start talking about belong at all, okay? It doesn't belong to me. I did not claim it. I do not claim it. And Frodo, it doesn't belong to you either. Um, I love the way in which Aragorn implicitly refers to the powers, right? Well, again, whether this be a Luvatar or the Valar that he's referring to, it does. He, he he implicitly refers to the powers, and he also implicitly refers to Sauron, though even more indirectly. It doesn't belong to either of us. We know who it belongs to, right? Sauron is the one that it belongs to. That is even more indirectly pointed to, right? So, you know, you've got Sauron over there, but again, notice the way that that establishes the situation here. Aragorn has very gently, very implicitly reminded us, right, that the situation here, yes, we're here to doom the deem of what we do with the ring, but what's the situation really like? The situation is uh, that there's the powers, right? The powers in the West. There's Iluvatar and there's Sauron, right? That's those are the. That's who's at war here, in a sense, right? Um, we 
you and I, Frodo, we've got, we've been given jobs. We've been delegated jobs. We both have a role to play in this story. But this isn't our story, right? At the end of the day, our roles are small, right? Even Aragorn's, even Frodo's, both of them, right? Arguably the two most important people with the possible addition of Gandalf, right? Um, but certainly, if you include Gandalf, the three of them are the most important people at the end of the Third Age, right? They do more, they have a more direct relationship to the uh, to the destruction of the Ring and the, 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 the winning of the War of the Ring than any other people, apart from Sam, who gets no credit. But, um, uh, but yet, nevertheless, Aragorn is correct. It's just, um, it's been ordained that you should hold it for a while. That's it. That's your job. Hold it. Right? You've been delegated that job. Right? Um, yeah. Um, good. Lincoln, what a wonderful point. Uh, Lincoln uh, points out the very skillful use of the passive voice by Aragorn here. It has been ordained that you should hold it. Um, by using the passive voice, of course, he suppresses the doer of the action, right? Um, that is what the passive voice accomplishes, uh, and that is to displace the doer of the, you know, the agent of the action as the subject of this, you know, it's, normally the doer of the action is the subject of the sentence, grammatically speaking, right? In the active voice. But in the passive voice, the doer of the action becomes the object of the verb instead of the, not the direct object of the verb. It's article, it's a, technically the object of a preposition, but the point is it, it it's not the doer of the action. It's no longer the subject of the sentence. It displaces the doer of the action from the subject of the sentence. And that's what he does here, too. It's not about... Um, this is... It's the ordaining. that ma- It has been ordained, and that's what matters. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. The sentence is about the action, not about the doer. Yes. So as much as we might want to think, what exactly does Aragorn mean? Is he alluding to Iluvatar? Is he talking about providence? God's providence here? Or is he talking about the Lords of the West taking an active role? Most of the time, when people want to ask that question about something in the Lord of the Rings, my answer is usually, I'm not sure it really matters, actually, which one of those things it is. I really don't know that at the end of the day that's necessarily a really very meaningful question to answer. And thus, Aragorn doesn't answer it, doesn't point to it. Um, uh, Jez, that's a great question. I wonder if Aragorn has any sense or uh, appreciation for what it means to be a ring bearer, as the term is later used. Um, No, no. Does Aragorn fully understand the cost what it's going to cost Frodo to hold it for a while? No, I don't think he does. I don't think he does. I mean, does he know it's a big deal? Yeah, he knows it's a big deal. He's not saying, Frodo, you're not all that. That's not his message here, right? Um, But do I think he fully understands? No. No, I don't think he fully understands that. Um, 
But the ownership notion is really is really important, Mike, as you bring up. It is a lesson Sam remembers later with Faramir. Um, Faramir or Sam calls it the enemy's ring. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frodo, uh, or rather Sam does not mistake it for Frodo's ring. At any point, I don't think. Um, I think it's always how Frodo think or how Sam thinks of it as the enemy's ring. Um, yes, Katriana. Oh yeah, no, I totally agree that Aragorn will understand, will get what it has meant to be the ring bearer. But yeah, no, I'm, I mean at this moment, um, when he says ordained that you should hold it for a while. Does he understand what that means? No, I don't think he understands that now. Um, but that's not the point. Uh, we're not yet at the point where he's asking Frodo to count the cost because Frodo's not volunteered yet. Should hold it for a while. Um, uh, I mean, as far as Aragorn knows, could mean for another 45 minutes to an hour, <laughs> right? Until, depending on how many people keep interrupting uh, the flow, you know, uh, Elrond's agenda. Um, I mean, uh, as far as Aragorn knows, Frodo's job could be done very soon, right? Um, so, anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. Bring out the ring, Frodo, said Gandalf solemnly. The time has come. Hold it up, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. The time has come. The time has come to reveal the ring. The time has come for Isildur's bane to waken. Um, hold it up, and then Boromir will understand the remainder of his riddle. Um... We will return to that question next week. Not that doesn't mean I'm doing this slide again next week. That means I'm. That's a segue into our discussion of the next slide next week, um, because Boromir, of course, is going to be the next one um, to speak here to respond to Gandalf's statement. And my question is: Will he? Will indeed Boromir understand the remainder of his riddle when he? Um, when Frodo holds up the ring. Tune in next time to see if you also think Boromir understands the remainder of his riddle when Frodo holds up the ring. Okay, so we're going to stop there. I don't know about you, but that was a lot. Holy cow. Um, so that was good. Um, uh, yeah, same time next week. I have no immediate plans to go anywhere. <laughs> so we'll be back next week. Um, and that, of course, is one of the other uh, one of the other uh, silver linings of our whole cultural situation right now is uninterrupted uh, opportunities to discuss together. Um, so see you guys next week. We're going we're gonna to do our field trip now. I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Um, and the folks on the Talon so that we can, uh, and, and, but of course, feel free to join us, twitch.tv slash Signum U. Uh, and, uh, we will, uh, uh, go on and do our field trip. So I'm going to say goodbye to the Twitter folks. Thanks for joining us. Okay. 
Great. And we're going to switch over here. Expand that there. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, yes, Hologro, I have been thinking about the question of a... Uh, okay, so let's head back. Uh, I think we've got... Tonight, I think we're going to finish Thorin's Gate. And indeed, all of the Arid Luin. Tonight. Um, so let's go back for that. Uh, so anyway, Hologro, yes, I have been thinking about this, and I have even gotten the um, the official, though still general, uh, green light uh, from the powers that be for holding another Wigand marathon. Um, <laughs> by, <laughs> by the powers that be, of course, I primarily mean my wife. Um who is an awesome lady. Who is an awesome lady, yes. Um, uh, but uh, she was agreeing that a, uh, a Lotro Marathon would indeed be a very sensible thing uh, to do uh, during the middle of this quarantine-like situation. So, um, uh, but I don't uh, still yet know for sure my horse is like vanishing and non and unvanishing as... I uh, ride through Bree. There we go. Okay, now he's here and wearing the correct equipment. And there's the stable as well. Okay, I just don't have a stable master yet. Let's see. It's very oh, strange that things oh, are showing up so late on your screen. And his shadow. Okay, there we go. Great. All right. How can I be of service? Um. Let's see. Thorin's gating. Can I afford it? I can. Excellent. Because we sent you. Well, you're oh, that was on the other server. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, okay. So yeah, so I do have the general go ahead, but we, I that don't have a commitment to a particular date or anything. Um, I figure I'll still probably do a weekend, even though in some ways weekends and weekdays are much more similar now than they used to be in the old days. Um, I uh, I still will probably do a weekend. Because that will be less disruptive to my like my broadcast, my regular broadcast schedule, easier to balance with my regular broadcast schedule, and um, uh, and that sort of thing. So, uh, and I, I know a lot of people still are working, whether they're working from home or some people still going into work. Um, so I know the weekend is still the weekend for many. So we'll we'll probably do that, um, but. Um, Anyway, so, yes, it will happen. It will happen soon. I'm thinking, my guess is probably April, um, but, uh, but I got to wait and see on a couple things to, to schedule. Um, my first impulse is to maybe do it on the weekend in which I would have been away, uh, the, like the... Uh, uh, in memorial of, in in memoriam of Magnolia Moot uh, 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 marathon, um, but we'll see. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure yet. Who knows? That That's still way far out, and who knows what the world will look like in three weeks or four weeks. Okay, so we had, we have, I should say, explored. Almost all of this, except mm -hmm. for downstairs. The basement. 
So let's go downstairs. And we'll yeah, start and if here. you uh, do your marathon in April, I will have been done with my uh, Letro 101 class by then because I accelerated. Cool. There we go. There because we go. of the, the thing that Standing Stone is currently doing, which they made all of the game's content, uh, the quests and yes. everything, uh, available to every account, free to play, whatever, uh, until the... Wait, until they what? Sorry, I lost the end of your statement there. Uh, till the end of April, uh, Standing Stone has made all of the game content available to all. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, yeah, so that's... Um, uh, that, that was awesome. Yeah, I saw I was really glad to see that. So yes, now is a, the perfect time to try out Lotro if you've never tried it out yourself before. Um, but... Uh, yeah, okay, so yes, I agree, Bricktails. Dwarves have big basements. Uh, I, I, hang on, here I am like running down this passage as if there was nothing to see in this passage, which of course, in addition to somnolent dwarves, um, the other interesting thing to notice is how rough-hewn this tunnel is. Not only the walls, which we've seen in some places, um, but the floors as well. Um, we have these arches, right? So we're supporting the roof down here in this tunnel, and we're supporting it with really nice, clean-cut Longbeardian arches, or long, long, mm-hmm. long, long beard, Longbeardian. Is that what we decided the adjective was? Longbeardish, or Longbeardy? Longbeardy. Like Lombardy. Um, I think it was Longbeardian, though. Yeah, no, because it was dower handy. So I think it was it was not the it was not e because we used that for dower handy because that was funnier. Um, Longbeardish, maybe I think. Um, but anyway, Longbeardian arches, um, and um, uh, uh, so yeah. But the walls and the floor are still really crude. Now, I suppose that could be related to the fact that, like, this guy is apparently still digging the floor. So we have active mining going on down here. So this is not... Okay. Well, it's nap time for that laborer. It's good to see anyway that the dwarves clearly abide by, like, you know... Like, they allow people their, like, established break times and smoking breaks and stuff, as is evidenced by the naps that some of the dwarves are taking on the job here. Um, so that's good. But yeah, so this isn't a basement so much as a mine shaft, we're told, right? And again, that seems to be borne out by the fact that they're doing work. What's this guy doing? The other guy was digging. What's this What's this dude up to? Looks like he's looking for something. Or like sorting? Or sorting something. Yeah, like sifting through the rubble to see if there's good mm-hmm. ore in the... Or something like that. Yeah, there's actually quests here in the game where you repair these uh, unfortunate... Uh... Yeah, I keep losing the end of your sentences, uh, Druid's Fire. Um, I apologize. I'm probably letting go of the button too soon. Yes, I think um, so. But yeah, there's a quest to deal with these uh, leaking walls. Right, the leaks that we're seeing there, yes. Yes, those look a little conspicuous. Um and like they're not an intended feature because there are no pools or streams of water, which I would expect if they were 
a desirable feature or a stable feature of this down here. So, okay. So this is some sort of mine. Um, then that would explain why the floor is rough. It's very wide, but it's rough. Um, and again, here we have somebody digging into a wheeled cart, right? Suggesting that it isn't merely repair work that's happening, or it was a good question. Um, um, uh, somebody was talking about that. Oh, yeah, uh, Jinjar was saying it's more like repairs than mining. I can see that. And again, at, you know, Druid's Fire, as you were pointing out, the... Um, the players are sent on repair quests down here. But it seems to be mining. See, look, that guy's got a pick. He's sleeping with his pick in his hands. There. His pickaxe. So um, so it does seem to be a mine. And I guess a speakeasy? Is kind of what it seems like. Because now all of a sudden we go from rough-hewn tunnel with only a few uh, arches to um, paved floors and a full indoor... Now this becomes except for the rough ceiling, a fully indoors environment. Rugs, chairs, tables, barrels. Right. This is a tavern with a bar and a troll head mounted on the wall. That's pretty awesome. Like that. Um, it kind of reminds me of what happened in London in 1666 after the fire in Pudding Lane. They burned out. They started the Great Fire of London. What did they do? They built the pubs first. After They built the pubs first. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny because the whole area, like the sense that we get from the whole, re the whole, this whole downstairs region, right, is that it's a, the whole thing is a, it does not just look like a tunnel down to the secret pub, right? Once we get down here, though, we could be forgiven for thinking that, but it kind of gives the impression like we were mining, Right, we're drilling down and we're mining, and we got down far enough, and somebody said, "Okay, we should really have a tavern down here, right? Because um, we don't want to schlep all the way back up." And you know, to, so let's um, let's uh, let's let's put a pub down here. And then they got like carried away, and they put so much effort into building this tavern because the detail work here is this is so finished. This whole thing is so finished um, that. I mean, it has to have taken many times more work to complete this tavern than it did to make the mine shaft and do all the mining that has ever been done in that shaft. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Hey, Violet, there's a back way into the forges? Yeah, the other pathway. I don't remember that. I think, now that you mention it, I think I did that once. But I'd forgotten about that completely. It's been a long time. These go to other places. The Ale Association Rep Hall, right? Oh, that's the Festival Hall. Uh, if you want to go in and take a look. This one is. 
Festival Arena. Okay. Right, so the other one is the Ale Association Hall, and this is the Festival Arena? Mm-hmm. So it proves that Thorin's Gate is a TARDIS of some sort, because Dwalin would normally be sitting above us, and that ceiling's way too high for the distance we came down the hall. Right. Okay, so that's easily explained. Easily explained. Because, you see, we had a cut screen before we emerged mm-hmm. from that door. So that, of course, doesn't necessarily imply that that door we just came through leads directly out into that room that we came from. Indeed, when you look through the door, right, when you open the door, what do you see? Another door, right? So, uh, like, when the door is standing open, do you see through into the tavern? No, you do not see through into the tavern, right? So, therefore, whenever I go through a door and it gives me a cut screen and, you know, brings me to uh, somewhere else, I'm always leaving open the possibility that there were possibly intervening passages, right, that I had to take that was, uh, um, uh, that was skipped, right, that, that, you know, that we, we just kind of cut to the, uh, uh, cut to the juicy part when we uh, when we finally got there. Um, hang on a second. I didn't realize how tall the racks of booze were on the hall on the sides they, of the. They are incredible. That is an amazing amount of ale. I mean, it is an almost inconceivable quantity of beer. That is. You think it was toilet beer. paper? Yeah, because I mean. When you look at the size of these barrels and then the quantity of them stacked up, that is amazing. Um, yeah. And anyway, I was looking at the statue here. That one. Two hammers. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And they're definitely not crafting hammers. Those are war hammers. Yes. Yes, I would think so. They certainly do look that way, but is it just a heavy hammer and a light hammer? Because one is your offhand hammer? It is in his yeah, left Yeah, because they aren't the same size. They're not the same size. That's the thing I was looking at. And I was trying, because my first thought was, wouldn't it be cool if he was holding a war hammer in one hand and, a, and like a crafting hammer, like Thorin's hammer from up above in the mm-hmm, hall mm-hmm. in his other hand. But I don't think so. I think it's just his offhand hammer. So it's a lighter hammer because yes, they do look otherwise matching. Even the patterns on them are matching. Um, yeah. Kind of like the, the hammer version of uh, the fighting style erroneously referred to as Florentine where you have a sword in your main hand and then you have like a long dagger or a dirk in your arm. Right, exactly. Exactly. Also, boy. Then we've got dwarves with other hammers over here on either side. He's got the least long beard of any long beard statue I've ever seen. Those statues on the side. There's a lot of them actually. They're holding a single hammer, like unto the larger hammer of this guy here. Yes, mm-hmm. they match the large hammer. 
They only have one hammer each, the dudes on the side. And, then and the dudes there's in the guys middle over are holding the one hammer sideways. Uh-huh. And then they the look like the hand. smaller hammer though. Maybe, I don't know. That head looks kind of large-ish. I think that's the big hammer, but maybe I'm just seeing it from closer up because it's farther down. Possibly, possibly. And then, okay, there's another two-handed guy with the both hammers. Hmm. And it's interesting because we haven't seen very many dwarves with weapons of war here inside Thorin's Gate. We've seen statues like them, of course, all over the place, outside. But, um, uh, yeah. It's funny, I just like how, like, all evening my, uh, thread has been interrupted by this very loud, insistent text telling me that a game of stomp shrew is about to begin. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's over in, uh, Kelinda near, in, actually in du- In Duolong, yeah, it says. And of course the chickens through the hedge mate. Yeah, yeah. And that's all part of, uh, uh, part of what, the spring festival? Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. I taught about the festival yesterday. Cool. Interesting, yeah, trifle... Yeah, the floor is very Moria-esque. In fact, all of this is kind of Moria-esque. Not only the kind of pentangular floor, but that pattern that you can see in between, that sort of off-center, sort of semi-sunburst, semi-spiderweb kind of radiating, radiating pattern, which we can see more clearly carved in the walls up here. Right? That's also very moria I remember Griffith seeing that all over the place in Moria. Um, the banners also seem very Moria to me, so that might be a symbolism of uh, Casa Doom specifically. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. But this is the festival ground. Festival yeah, arena. this is... Yeah, it's... Um, and the hammers, I think, are significant in terms of the context of the festival event is where you take a club and you beat the other players so they can't uh, partake of the booze. That's So the festival that is held here is the festival of preventing other people from drinking? No, it's just you, you beat each other with a club and, you know, last person who can actually tap the keg there in the middle wins. It's kind of like this snowball fight in Yule Festival, okay. but this is dwarves and hammers and beer. Right. Right. Um, right. Now, but, but I they like... use clubs, so that's probably why they're using hammer-wielding dwarves as decoration. Right. Okay. That's odd. That's odd. But many of the festivals are rather odd. Um, yeah, um, as Snorblum says, it's whack-a-mole, basically. Right, whack-a-mole, right. Okay. Now, is there a door from in here? There is. Oh, it's by the other door, right? Uh, 
There's three doors. Aha. Uh -huh. One leads to... No, wait. Do you have a memory of this place? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. So one leads back to the inn. Uh, and the other leads out. Let's go out. See, again, here, I'm assuming passageways are involved. And then, boom! We emerge as if from the front door. But clearly not from the front door. Like, we probably came out this door. There's also a greenhouse over here by the skirmish camp, by the way. Yeah, that's where I wanted to head. Somebody was asking about those. The Deathman, I think, was asking about that, and I remembered that we... I had been so excited finally to get into Thorin's Gate that I hadn't looked at the... Uh, sort of garden area over here. So let us end our Thorns Gate exploration. It's lovely. Okay, so we've got the camp. We're looking out over all the things, right? There's the that fun structure, elvish structure up on the hill that we looked at before. And then we get this building back here. Hang on now. Okay, this is consistent with the architectural style of the front of the building. Mm -hmm. This wall and stained glass. It's one of those... So, dower handy. Yeah, but it's like one of those nouveau dower handy architectural types as we've seen in several places in Thorin's Gate, where I'm assuming that what we're looking at is a sort of um, um, Longbeardian revival uh, of the Dower Handy structure, because these kinds of... Um, these kinds of... Uh, yeah, see, like there, in the corner here, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? yep. Where we see those, which are not the same as the stained glass that we were seeing in other places, but... Um, Anyway, but we've seen it several times here throughout Thorin's Gate, and I think it's clearly not a relic of an older um, structure. I can no, imagine. what we yeah. what we've seen in game, and you actually missed this as part of the uh, Stout Axe starting instance. Yeah. yeah. But you actually go into a version of Thorin's Gate that is under their direct rule before Dwalin took over. Uh -huh. And there was, like, rubbish and rust all over the place. And so it's clear that, story-wise, the Longbeards, when they came back, cleaned the place up. But right. there's got to be so much uh, in the architecture that they would not have been able to change in such a short time. Or it was so structurally integral to the building that if they had torn it out, it everything would have collapsed. Right. 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 Okay. Wow. You know what? What? I've never been in here before. Neither have I. Never in my life. This is here? Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a greenhouse. Yes, indeed. Well, they need a place to do farming. This is where you do the farming and the... Uh... Huh. See, there's, uh, there's a player over there in the corner doing mushrooms. No. Who knew? Farming mushrooms, not doing... Or not doing mushrooms. That's something different. <laughs> something very different. <laughs> but yes. no, there there isn't farmland. I don't believe in the crafting area inside where near the forges that we explored yeah, several no, classes. There's certainly no farming area. Um, that's amazing. 
and it's open to the sky. So this is... That makes this, ironically, the greenhouse where they have their farming is the place that is not... Um, like, this is not built as a... This has a roof. Yep. The rest of Thorin's Gate doesn't have a ceiling. Nowhere in and Thorin's Gate. And it's the same pattern. Yes, as the festival hall, as festival arena. Well, that floor patterning is found in many dwarven places. Mm -hmm. so you'll, mm -hmm. I think you'll see also an area. Yes. That they need a place to grow crops makes sense, but. Yeah, you never. I don't think you ever went through the uh, this a similar place in in Moria itself. There, there is a garden in the middle of Moria. Yeah, well, there's that area with all the growth in it. Mm-hmm. So you've been... Yeah, you have been there. But I don't think we actually stopped and took a look because we were doing it at Ridic uh, Ridiculous. Yeah, well, I certainly didn't with Grifflet. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember, And I remember exploring it. I did, as I mentioned at one point, uh, mm -hmm. do something like a completionist Moria. Um, but that was years a ago. A long time ago. Yeah, it was years ago. Is that meant to be glass? Is that actually glazed? I think it must be. I don't know. Actually, I think it is because when I'm looking at like one of the the points of light, mm -hmm. the the design around it looks like crude glass. I mean, it's not very yeah. fine that you can. No, you can see. That, yeah, I can see the, like the ripples and crystals and things like that. But yeah, it's. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's it's it, it, that is a massive pane of glass. Yeah, a single pane of glass with yes. no no support. Yes, exactly. Um, and I agree; they do need. I'm not questioning the um, how sensible uh, this is, um, but just because it's needed and important doesn't mean it's automatic that it's here. Um, so I wonder if the imperfect, like imperfections in the glass, would actually make it tougher to the possibility of you know something breaking it. Yeah, I don't know. It is huge, though. Those are just enormous windows. If I mean, if if that is glass. I mean, there's two reasons why you'd want to have panes, like smaller panes in your glasses. You know, if just one small one breaks, relatively easy to repair. Yes. And secondly, the framing around them is support. The support that would be needed for a single pane of glass is just mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't even do that in modern times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 sort of ripples and lines that we can see in it also give me the impression that it's very thick. The glass. It would have to be. Yeah, it would have to be. Um, I'm also thinking of, you know, when somebody takes a, uh, a magnifying glass and holds it in the sun and it burns the back of their hand like an idiot. Mm -hmm. So that's got to have happened. Right. This banner. Mm -hmm. I know we've seen it before. Have we seen it anywhere else in Thorin's Gate? I believe so. I'm just trying to think of where we've seen it. 
I mean, it's one of those things that we see. I'm pretty sure this is a later banner. Like that this wasn't native to this part of Arid Luin in the game history, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the raven would seem to indicate, you know, the ravens of Erebor, but then why would do we have two other mountains? Exactly. That's just what I was going to ask. And are these a single mountain with three peaks? And why stars? Uh, I mean, if is... anything, this looks like a Moria banner, right, with the three peaks, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, that would make sense. And the stars up ahead, which would be Dur the crown of Durin. Or at least part of the crown of Durin, yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's not the whole crown, but it's also the, the banner is a little wrinkled up at the top there. So, you know, maybe uh, it's just not hanging flush or whatever, but... Um, but yes, a constellation of stars in the sky above three mountains sounds like Moria to a T, as far as I'm concerned. But the raven is odd, because the raven does. I mean, I agree with you. The raven says Erebor to me all the time, you know, straight up. I mean, what, 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 what else would we even associate with ravens? I'm not sure. Right, but then they redesigned, well, at least they designed an Erebor standard that fits in yeah. a similar thin pattern that you see the red banners. There are like a purple and blue one that has the Arkenstone and a definitive Raven uh, crest. Right. Right. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Deathman has an interesting comment. Who, Deathman's comment? Yeah, it might be. They said that it might be the original banner before they did the starting area upgrade and they missed this area. But I've seen that banner elsewhere in the game. Yes, me too. Uh, and anyway, that's not the game I'm, I'm interested in playing. True. I'm interested in saying, okay, everything... Why is what, it this here? Yeah. Let's, let's not ask why the game developers might have put it or placed it or left it there. Let's ask, whose banner is that in Middle-earth? And why would it be like that? Now, if it's... So, of the elements of the banner, two of the three elements say Moria and one seems to say Erebor. Now the thing that Erebor and Moria have in common, obviously, is the House of Durin. Um, uh, so certainly the dwarves of Erebor especially in the early generations would not have forgotten Moria. Um, ah, I have a theory. Uh-oh. I have a theory. Okay. Um, the Blue Mountains. We're in the Blue Mountains. So that the mountains only coincidentally look like Moria. Well, the Raven could still represent the Longbeards, but they're in exile from Erebor. But now I they're in the Blue Mountains. Similarly, it represents. I see. I see. I was thinking. So my theory was very similar, but going back in the other direction, time wise and thinking, what if it was an early banner of the Longbeards who were in exile from Moria in Erebor? So their banner yeah. their banner recalls Moria, the land that they had to flee from, right? But it superimposes the raven on top of it to show, not only to make the connection to their current place where they're living in, in the Lonely Mountain and in the Iron Hills, um, but to convey it's a raven in flight, right? It's not just like a perching raven or something like that. It's a raven in flight with its back to Moria, right? As if it has flown out from Moria 
so it's like the exile banner, which they would have replaced. Mm-hmm. So that's different from the modern Erebor banner because the modern Erebor banner are like of dwarves who are like reconciled to being an Erebor. Like they, they've mm-hmm. returned to Erebor. Returning to Erebor was a big deal for, for them, right? Um, and Moria, of course, they haven't forgotten Moria as we know even yet, but yet nevertheless. Anyway, so that's, that's one theory. The idea that that could mm-hmm. be the Blue Mountains, I mean, of course, in support of that theory, the mountains in this banner are unquestionably indeed blue, right? So that is interesting. And you're right that if we, again, if we take the raven as the, still the Erebor link, you're right that that same concept of flight, um, that they have flown from Erebor to the Blue Mountains, and so the Blue Mountains, the raven finding its new home in the midst of the Blue Mountains, but not yet at rest, uh, because it still remembers Erebor, that could also work symbolically with what we see there. Or it's just kind of hanging out here for a little while, but it's not intending to stay. Exactly. It's still it's still meaning to fly back to uh, to fly back to Erebor eventually. Um, yeah. I don't know I, why I the stars, Casa Doom. though. Well, see, that's why I'm not. I'm thinking it's not Casa Doom simply because Casa Doom really has a lot of links to Durin specifically in the mm-hmm. symbol uh, of you know the Miramir. Yeah. I think would have been more clear that there would have been more Durinish. Make sure. a, an adjective, Durinish yep. symbology here to say this is definitely Durin. This is more of a you know we're we're kind of not home. We're just hanging out here in, in some blue mountains, and there's some stars here, but they're not our stars. Right, right. Okay, so that so basically you're suggesting that the stars above the mountains are meant to like evoke memories of Moria to get you thinking vaguely Durin-esque thoughts, but not to be a direct illusion, like to say these are the mountains of Moria. Right. Um, or if you want to name the stars, you can name them Thrain, Thor, and uh, Thorin. Right. The three right. most recent kings of the dwarves or leaders of this particular group of... Uh, sure, sure. Um, yeah. That's, that's spitballing a little bit. Yeah, I can I can see that. I can see that. Um yeah, now it's true. Trifle points out that, of course, the Blue Mountains are also mm-hmm. home to many elves, which would be associated with stars. So um, finding a home here in the midst of the Blue Mountains, um, you know, surrounded by, you know, in, in conjunction with the Eldar, that could that could work as well. Um, yeah. No, uh, Deathman, it's not a sense that it's not that sense that the that. They, they would be different stars in the sense of like seeing different stars in a different hemisphere but just not depicting Durin's specific constellation the crown of Durin um, yeah I think the thing. only reference we have to different appearing stars is a reference to going so far south that the stars are strange yes exactly. um, everything else is firmly northern hemisphere what would be seen from the yeah yeah definitely definitely okay um all right, one last thing, Pontine. Where, where are the where are these bushes that you're pointing to? Oh, up there. Oh, here in the brazier. Whoa. Okay, that's weird. Are those crystals or are those actual like coals? They look like coals to me. So they really kind of do. Now I don't see any any heat. Um, 
you know, refraction of the air. Yeah. Like we do get no in the forges, but we really only get that with next to the enormous super hot forges. That's a little strange. I mean, here I was just noticing, like, oh, isn't it kind of cool? Because from down here, you don't see the coals. I was looking at this angle, right? So you don't see the coals. So I was looking at this and being like, isn't it kind of cool where, like, instead of, you know, light or, you know, braziers or something like that, we get pots of flowers in this room. And it turns out, no, they're doing a two-for-one deal on pots of flowers and red-hot coals. And to ask a question of my fellow players, maybe I'm just missing... Is this the only place I can think of where they actually made proper furrows in the farmland? I was noticing like, that, yes. too. Like, where else do we see furrows in mounds in a far, in a field? They're all flat otherwise. Yeah, and they, and they use, you know, a flat texture with shading on it to make it look... They, yeah. they actually did furrows here. Yeah, I don't remember seeing this anywhere else there's farmland yeah Pontine says it's the only one that he knows of it's very interesting but anyway I agree Amathorn those are some pretty amazingly hardy bushes that are growing out of the apparently red hot coals there um, and, it's, and it's not just one kind of bush there's two different kinds yeah yeah Actually, three, there's a different one behind it. Well, in front. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. three separate different kinds of bushes able to survive in those things. Wow. No explanation for that, but I guess, you know, there it is. It's uh, a hardy. Uh, I didn't feel bad for this tree no over here, though. That is a very small uh, basin for it to be. I uh, am thinking the roots extend down outside that pot. Yeah, but, you time, know, the time, immediate roots... Time to repot that tree, in any case. Actually, both of them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Um, now, I know they do use crystals for light in Moria. They don't necessarily have to be hot coals. They're colored like hot coals, but in any case... Even bushes growing out of crystals, let's face it, that's a little bit less weird than growing out of hot coals, but it's not like it's totally non-weird. Um, anyway, okay, but I should let everybody go. I'm keeping everybody super late tonight, um, uh, so I should let everybody go. Uh, and I don't even know where we're going next. Where our next I don't know. It's like, I hope Valori will be back next week. Yeah, me too. We'll have to figure it out. Um, I'm a poor substitute teacher. If it's my own class, I'm pretty good. But we could go. We could go on up into the Misty Mountains from Rivendell. Um, we could. Because the Misty Mountains are kind of a dead end. Did we do that? We didn't do that, did we? Uh, we kind of did. We'll be on Arkenstone next week. I can't remember if we did that or if I'm remembering going up there with Griffith. But anyway. I'm don't I think we got as far as talking to seeing Arwen, possibly. Yeah, I know we Or maybe we, we had there. just Yeah. I don't think we actually went up uh Kirith and Lodris and into the 
I, I could be misremembered. It's been a very long time. Maybe we did go up and talk to Glowen. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Um, anyway, we'll figure it out. So next week we'll go somewhere. Hey, maybe back to Angmar. We kind of interrupted Angmar in the middle to leap. And they redecorated. They redecorated Angmar? I've, I haven't been. Uh, the um, scenario redid Ramduath and it looks amazing. Ah, well then. They're a further inducement to return. Oh, yeah. You remember when we were looking... When we were looking at Angmar, we were wondering about the uh, buildings on the cliffs around Oghair. Yes. Yes. They're not there anymore. They're not there anymore? They're not there anymore. Ah, the truth comes out. Okay. All yeah. Right. All right, well, we'll see. Okay. So maybe we'll head back to Angmar next time and uh, continue our explorations. But anyway, in any case, thank you, everybody, for joining me tonight again. And we'll, one way or another, wherever it is we go, we'll see you guys next week. So thanks, everybody. Good night now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.